Thank you so much for tuning in to the Spiro Avenue Show. You could follow us on social media at Spiro Avenue on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also watch our full episodes and clips and highlights on YouTube. And we would appreciate it if you could hit that subscribe button for us. Anyways, thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy. Well, welcome back to the Spiro Avenue Show. And, you know, we talk about a lot of things on this show. We kind of run the gamut. We're all over the place. But I like to say we subscribed to the 80-20 rule a long time ago. I'm a big believer in the 80-20 rule. Some people apply it to diet, you know, as long as you're good 80% of the time, you can eat whatever you want, 20. My thing's a little bit different. Mine's a content diet. That's what I talk about on this show. And yeah, is it a sports show for the most part? Yeah, it is. If you go to SpiroAvenue.com, you're going to see it's the best Detroit sports talk, which we are self-proclaimed. Only Tony Paul is back us up on that one. But we are not all sports here because we are occasionally drifting into the 20% pool. We like the 20% pool. It opens up all sorts of possibilities for me where I don't have to talk about the Detroit Lions every time or the Detroit Tigers spending at an underwhelming rate, given what we've been waiting for for five years. So we do talk about the 80-20 rule openly here. And tonight, we're not going to do the 80% sports. We're going to be in that 20% whatever basket. We don't want to ever be limited here. We're certainly not limited tonight. I've, I've had a lot of uh, characters on here. Uh, a lot of people with different backgrounds, life experiences. Recently, had, uh, recently, we had Becca Polanski, a clinical psychologist who works in the prison system. Fascinating, fascinating guest. We've had uh, the best mafia writer in the country right now, Scotty Bernstein, who is sitting in our lobby as it happens to uh, turn out right now. He's been on the show. We've had politicians. We've had Roger Stone on this show, believe it or not. We've had representatives from the far left, the far right. We've had moderates. We, we've been all over the place. So tonight's guest, I don't know about right or left, but he, he's definitely not in that sports basket. Like, frankly, anything to get our minds off the Michigan football team playing in Indianapolis on Saturday, which breaks my heart on a number of levels, I'm all for, especially today. We booked this one a couple months ago. I'm really, really excited for it. Uh, look, as many fascinating people as we've had on this show, tonight's the first time we've ever had somebody that had wanted posters with their face on it all over the country. This is a cool one for me. I don't know even how to introduce him. He's a writer, director, producer, author, a skilled order, an inductee of the Fugitive Hall of Fame, whatever you want to call it. Fascinating guy, great guy. Seth Ferranti, your Spiro Avenue debut, man. It's great to have you. Thanks for coming. Yeah, no, here, man. Uh, appreciate you uh, flying me in. Yeah, you're fresh off a of flight from St. Louis. And uh, you are the second guest to fly in just for the show. Although I do know you have a lot of connections here and friendships here, including the aforementioned Scott Bernstein. Uh, look, you know, we, we were going through, we booked this a couple months ago. I reached out to you. You have such a fascinating backstory, your life, what you've done, you know, as a youth, as a young adult, into more of your uh, contemporaneous account of your life. I, we could have started so many places, but I, I think I kind of want to start uh, to do the sound of music thing from the very beginning, if if you will, um, the Brian Laundry story famously blew up, and it's still kind of the whispering lingers going on. That's how I really discovered you. I was familiar with your fantastic documentary White Boy on Netflix. I you know I was familiar with uh, it, some of your connections. I'd heard your name out there, but I never had a name to the face. I didn't really know who Seth was, and this Brian Laundry story is all over the news. And you were kind of like the 
the break glass in case of fugitive story guy. I mean, it's like they'll bring in an expert. If a plane goes missing, they'll bring in like the old retired pilot. This was presumably a fugitive situation. And they bring in like probably the most, one of the most successful fugitives ever. I know you've, your resume is, is grown a lot longer since then, but this is sort of the beginning of your life stories. It pertains sort of in the public eye. I just want you to kind of tell your story uh, from the, you know, not the beginning from birth, but from, from like, how, how did you um, end up in the corrective system, uh, you know, the correction system to begin with? How did you land there? And then we'll kind of work our way from there. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think I got a pretty typical story. You know, um, I, I grew up in the 80s. I came of age in the 80s. Um, I grew up in California. By the mid 80s, I was a experimenting with like, you know, marijuana, LSD, psychedelic. So uh, I kind of got into that. And, um, you know, as I, as I progressed, you know, I, I figured out that really, if you want to do drugs, the best way to do drugs, you know, if you want to do them for free is to sell them. So, you know, I, I started selling drugs at a real young age, probably like around 16. And, um, you know, my dad was in the military, so we kind of bounced around a little bit. You know, California, I lived in London for a little bit. Then we ended up on the East Coast when I was about 17. And um, I just started, man. I was like the California kid in, in Virginia, like right outside of D.C. And I, I was getting like weed sent from, from Humboldt County, like Emerald Triangle, like through some of my homeboys in San Francisco. I was getting LSD sent from a lot of Grateful Dead people that I knew that were based out of San Francisco. And it kind of went from just doing it, you know, to kind of supply me and my friends with, uh, you know, what I would consider good, righteous drugs to. By the time I was 19, I was supplying 15 colleges in five states, you know, as all my friends filtered off the school. And uh, yeah, that was the kind of thing. We just partied. And, you know, unfortunately, I was doing this like uh, kind of in the shadow of this big thing in our country called the war on drugs. You know, and I, I was in the suburbs, so I, I didn't really have a clue. It's not like a lot of people in the suburbs, you know, were getting busted. It was more the war on drugs was more kind of a. Uh, you know, the racial injustice thing targeting, you know, the African-Americans in the inner city for the crack and cocaine. And so um, I didn't really know about it. But, you know, eventually, you know, like 91, they kind of went out to the suburbs and I was in that first wave of marijuana and uh, LSD psychedelic guys that they started busting. And, um, you know, I got I got indicted and I had a little bit of money and I, I was kind of like, I, I didn't want to face it. So you know, basically, like, I took the fuck off, you know, I was like, man, fuck this, you know, they were talking about like 20 years to life, and I was like 20 years old, you know, so I, I you know, I, I was out on bail, and I decided, you know, I'm just gonna run, that's kind of how, you know, my whole fugitive thing kind of started. And you had, you had no prior record, I don't think, right, I mean, from reading into you, not that I could find, so I, it was, you know, it's so funny, because like, would it be against the law, would you face some charges, yes, if it happened right now? But like in, in 2021, if you're selling weed and even LSD, even on a large scale, like you might be in some trouble, but it's not going to be 20 years to life. I mean, that you were kind of caught up in the perfect storm of that timing. Were you, when you're doing this stuff, I, I just take me back to because you started, what, 18, 19 when you began kind of right there? Uh, probably like 15, 16. Fifth, like, but when it really got going. I know yeah, you, yeah, it started yeah. blowing up like 18, 19. When it got big. You're 18, 19 years old. You're going, you're the kingpin locally. Does it ever cross your mind, like what you're doing in terms of the risk involved with the law? Were you cognizant of that or was it kind of the invincibility? I'm young and no one can touch me thing. 
No, I mean, I, I knew, I mean, it's not like I was like John Gotti or Pablo Escobar, you know what I mean? For a teenager, I mean, yeah, for a teenager, I mean, I was probably making like 20, 25, $30,000 a month. You know, I was bringing in like 100 pounds of weed a month. I was probably getting like 10,000 hits of acid. But, you know, I was supplying like 15 colleges, you know, that's, that's a lot of colleges. So, you know, there were a lot of people that were trying to party and stuff. So I, I knew that I wasn't this big dude, but I wasn't really, I, I was ignorant you know, of the laws, you know, like the whole war on drugs thing, because the war on drugs started like around 88. So my case was 91. So, you know, and, and like I say, I was kind of in my own little cocoon, you know, going, you know, like, like most kids in college, you know, you go to college, you know, you know, I went to college, I didn't go to college, I was, was the guy that brought the drugs to the college, you know, so but I, I was just partying. So I was kind of in that scene. So really, I, I had no kind of clue as to this whole war on drugs and actually what was happening. But when it did happen, I mean, I was kind of surprised. I was, I was a first-time nonviolent offender. You know, as you said, I had no prior charges. I didn't even have a traffic ticket. So, like, you know, when they started talking 20 to life, I was kind of like, I mean, really, I was, I was, I was like, really angry. And I was shocked because I was like, you know, like, this is America. Like, this is my country. I'm like, are you serious? Like, you're trying to put me away for, like, 20 to life? I mean, you know, I was, I was angry, shocked, and I was almost kind of outraged because, first off, you know, I always tell people this, right? I never consider myself a criminal. I never beat people up. I never carried a gun. You know, I never had like a criminal organization, right? I considered myself an outlaw because I broke laws that I thought were wrong. And, you know, now, boom, whatever, 30 years later, you know, I feel real justified because, you know, now we have legal marijuana. Now they're looking at psychedelics, you know, for all different type of therapeutical treatments. So, you know, I feel like, yeah, you know, even back then I felt like I was in the right. So, you know, now I really, as a 50-year-old man, I really feel like, you know, I was in the right, even though I had to pay that big penalty. Yeah, so you're, you're kind of ignorant to what's going on around you. You're living in your world. I, I have to laugh. I mean, I know, I'm sure Pablo Escobar was a lot more than that, but like 20 to 30K, especially in 1990, 1991, for a guy who's 20, I mean, even now for someone 50, I mean, <laughs> pretty impressive. I Like, how did you get caught in the web? Were you, were you kind of like the, the good fellas thing, like Robert De Niro telling people, Hey, don't buy anything big. Were you like driving a Porsche down, down main street, you know, as a 20 year old living large, or were you more, was it buried in a mattress? Like kind of like, how were you living then before you got caught? And then lead me into the web where you did get caught. Yeah, no, I, I wasn't really high profile. I mean, I had some different cars, but not like I was driving around sports cars. Actually, I was a smuggler. You know, I used to I used to like go to Texas. I used to go to Florida and I would bring weed back. So I was like a drug smuggler, you know, because I figured out early on that like if you bought, you know, like marijuana in one place and you took it to another place, you could make a lot of money. And back then, you know, it was all brick pot. You know, it wasn't like nowadays, you know, like we have all this, you know, real super pretty, you know, cannabis. Back then it was like it was brick pot. It was coming from Mexico. And I was paying like 300, 400 a pound. And I was taking it up, you know, to the East Coast. And I was, I was getting like $1,000, $1,200 a pound. So I was making pretty good money. But, you know, I, I had like, you know, back then I, I had like a Subaru. You know, I had like, I had three Subaru station wagons. You know, they were the kind of, they said turbo four-wheel drive on the side. So I had three of those. They were basically my smuggling cars, you know. And then, like I said, I, I, had, I had an apartment. Like I had a place in Alexandria, Old Town. So I had a nice townhouse, but, you know, my thing was just kind of like hanging out with my friends. Like I would do stuff. I would take like 20 people to the bar, you know, and I would cover the whole tab. 
you know, and I would get like underage people into the bars and stuff like that because the bartenders knew me. They knew I was going to tip them really big, you know, but I was, I was more into being like, uh, you know, really, I, I kind of like, to me, I was like, uh, I was like a rock star. You know, I had like all my friends. I was like the center of attention. I was like the man. And that's kind of like, you know, at that time, that's what I craved. That's what I wanted. You know, so it wasn't, it wasn't like extravagant, you know, like I didn't have like, you know, properties and houses. Most of the money I had, it was like water. Like I was just blowing it. You know, I was a type of dude, like I did, I did like at that time, like, like sneakers, I was a big sneaker dude. So, you know, Air Jordans, it probably came out like 85, 86. So, you know, by like 90, 91, you know, I probably had like a hundred pair of Air Jordans. You know, and then I was a type of dude too. I would go buy shirts. I would go buy clothes. I would wear them once, you know, and like my thing was polo back then. So I would wear shirts once and then I would just basically like give them away. That was like a thing. Like I only wore new shirts, you know, and I wore them once. So big you know, time for a 20 year old. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, I was extravagant in those ways, but you know, not like, you know, I didn't have property. I didn't have big, you know, I was, I didn't have planes. You know, I was, I was not on that level. That was like a level you know, very high above me, you know, most of the money I was making, I was blowing. Plus, you know, I, w- I was a deadhead too. So I would go on dead tour, you know, and I would spend a lot of money like following the dead across country. A grateful dead for the uninitiated, right? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, cause that was my thing. I was on the psychedelic theme and um, yeah, so I, I wasn't, I wasn't that extravagant at all, but you know, after I was doing it for a while, um, you know, in my area and even up and down the East Coast in the colleges, I, I started, you know, developing a name. And plus, like my name, Seth. I mean, it's more common nowadays, but, you know, back then, Seth wasn't like you didn't meet a lot of Seth. You know, now you've got like some famous people like Seth Rogan, Seth McFarlane. So people know that name more. But like, you know, in the 80s, you know, early 90s, there was a lot of people named Seth. So my name, you know, kind of, you know, people knew me. They knew this guy, Seth, even if they didn't know me, he was a drug dealer, dude. So people started talking about me and then how my whole case came about was there was this big field party, like out in Clifton, Virginia, and Clifton, Virginia is in Fairfax County, but it's like an area with all these million dollar houses, you know, even back then. And when people's parents would go, you know, we would just have like these big parties, you know, and these, these were like, on, you know, multiple acre lots. So there was a big field party and I, I wasn't even there. I, didn't, I think I was like in Hawaii at the time, you know, I went to Hawaii for three months. And there was this big field party and the cops came to break up the field party. And there was this young kid. He was like a 15 year old kid was tripping on LSD, like LSD that I had brought into the area, you know? So this young kid, the cops chased him and they said he was like running through the woods naked or something. So the cops, the cops like tackled him and they said he, he drew the, he grabbed the cop's gun out of his holster and he shot the cop in the arm. And once this happened, it was like, you know, because anything, if you know any, anything, like if you do something against law enforcement, you know, they come down hard. They come down with hammer. And, you, you know, in some cases, rightly so, you know, so, so I'm going to say that, you know, I'm not going to say it was unjustified. But, uh, yeah, they basically, they had like an LSD witch hunt, you know, and they started, they started busting people. They found the guy that, you know, sold the, the kid that acid. And then even though I was probably like seven people removed. You know, they, they just went up the chain, you know, the DEA got involved and it was just like dominoes and they started falling and eventually they got to me. And at first I got arrested on a state charge. And then after I got on arrest on the state charge, like two months, two months later, I got indicted federally. So all because of a teenager running naked through the woods. I don't I've never done acid, so I can't speak intelligently. I feel like 
the guy running around naked is either like a really good trip or a really bad trip with no between there. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you could speak to that after the show. But so this whole thing starts with a kid running around naked in the woods, which I find kind of interesting. So you get indicted. Is it you get this knock on the door? Like, what was the process? When did you first find out that you were sort of under their thumb? And like, what are you thinking? What's going through your head when it first crosses your desk? No, no, I got, I like, I, I got arrested. You know, I got. They I just got, showed up and cuffed you. No, I got, I got, I got set up. Like somebody set me up. Oh, so you, you know, got so, stung. So man. they were doing the investigation and they found the dude. And as they were going up the chain, you know, I got set up. And they actually they tried to set me up with a narcotics officer, right? And so it was another friend of mine, you know, from high school who used to sell stuff for me. And so he kind of flipped and he was trying to get me to do a deal with this narc. But like, I didn't know this narc. But I was like, man, I'm not doing a deal with you, you know, but while all this is going on, this discussion, like it was already set up. We were in a 7-Eleven where we had this meet. And so they're trying, the dude's trying to give me money, you know, the narc. And he's trying to tell me he needs like 20 sheets of acid. And I don't even have any acid on me. I'm just like going, you know, I think I'm going to help my friend. But, you know, I didn't know. I had no idea it was a setup. So then like all the uh, SWAT team, you know, and their uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, you know, outfits like jump out, you know, like slam me against the wall, you know, like cuff me up. You know, and they and they start like they brought me in like the DEA. They're like, oh man, they're like, you don't even know how much trouble you're in. And I'm, I'm like, what are you talking about? I didn't even do anything. You know, I didn't give anybody any drugs. I didn't take any money. You know, so to my way of thinking, I think I'm clean. But you know, I have no idea about like conspiracy laws. So you know, I mean, with with the way, especially with the feds, you know, once they bring conspiracy into it, all they need is like a couple people to say that you're the guy that's bringing it in. They don't need any real evidence. Yeah. I mean, the, the testimony is evidence in itself. They don't need like the smoking gun coming out. I don't know. I mean, well, I, I'm curious for the first time it, it crossed your mind to run. Now you say you went into your closet with the hundred pairs of Jordans and the polo shirts and you dug the bail money out. You got yourself out. So you're, you're out. At what point from the time you walk out of there having posted bail to the time that you are officially, uh, you didn't show up for your court bait. At what point does it click in your brain like, I'm getting the fuck out of here? When did that hit you? I would say it was almost immediately. As, as soon as I, I found out, you know, what I was facing, because, I mean, I was 20. I mean, they were talking about, you know, I, I went, was going to meeting. I had two lawyers. First, I had a state lawyer, and then I had a federal lawyer. And they're talking about, like, I'm looking at 20 to life. I'm like, 20 to life? I'm like, are, are you fucking serious? I'm like, how? I'm like, I didn't kill anybody. I'm not like a mafioso. You know, how am I looking at 20 to life? And so, you know, then they're, then they tell me too, like they, this is another big war on drugs thing, you know, that it's, it's come through the war on drugs, which they're like, well, you can do less time if you cooperate. And I was like, cooperate. I'm like, what are you talking about? They're like, well, you got to set people up. And I'm like, I'm looking at them. I'm like, why would I, somebody just set me up. I'm like, why would I do that to somebody else? Most people would though. (laughs) Most people probably would. Yeah, but I, I just, yeah. you know, I, I'm, I'm the type of dude, you know, that I was like, man, I was like, I didn't want to do 20 to life. I didn't want to cooperate. So I was like, like, what are my alternatives? You know, my alternatives are to basically run. And, you know, it, it's funny, too, because I had read this book. And I don't know if the book, the book came out in, in, in I think, around like 88 or something, you know, but the, the mid to late 80s. And it was the book that the dude that they made the movie, Catch Me If You Can. 
you know, they eventually made the movie like in the 2000s or whatever, you know. But um, I had read that book. The book came out in the 80s, right? I think his name was like Frank. Frank Abagnale. Yeah. So I had read the book, right? And I, maybe like two or three years before I had read the book before all this happened, right? So I was already kind of thinking, man, you know, I was like, you know what? I was like, you know, I'm, I'm going to take the fuck off. I'm like, man, fuck these motherfuckers. You know, I go, I'm not, I'm not snitching on nobody. And I said, I'm not doing fucking 20 years of life. I said, fuck them. And I had a little bit of money. I didn't have a lot of money, but I had some money. And plus, you know, like I said, I, I had, I had family and friends in California. You know, my dad was in the military, so I moved all around. So I knew a lot of people and a lot of, I knew people overseas. I had friends like in London, you know, so I was like, man, I'm, I'm going to take off. So I would say it was almost immediate within a couple of weeks, you know, when my lawyers told me what I was facing. So I started making this plan in my head. And also an, an, another thing that happened is, you know, when I was in that area, I, I was always a big sports fan. So, you know, back then it was like newspapers. So, you know, I would always like, we'd get to Washington Post and I would always go boom, right to the sports section. You know, right before the sports section was always the Metro section, right? And I remember seeing, like when all this happened, I, I just like kind of dawned on me. I remember like in the Metro section, they would have like these reports every now and then, like, you know, uh, you know, distraught person commits suicide, you know, at Great Falls. And what Great Falls was this national park, you know, like, like right on the Potomac River that went out to the Atlantic Ocean, right? And so I remember seeing these reports like through my teenage years, like over three, four, five years, you know, in the metro section. And, you know, I'd glanced at them, maybe sometimes I might read them, but I, I you know, it just kind of like, you know, dawned to me and I was like, man, I was like, man, I can fake my suicide. So, you know, all this kind of happened, like all within a couple of weeks. And I came up with this plan. I was like, you know what? I'm going to stage my suicide on the, the cliffs of the Potomac River. I'm going to make it seem like I jumped. You know, then in seven years, Seth, they're not going to find a body. And, it's, you know, I thought my body was going to float out to the Atlantic Ocean. You know, and in seven years, Seth Ferrante can be declared legally dead. You know, and I was like, okay, no Seth Ferrante, no case. You know, whatever. I got to live as somebody else, but whatever. You know, I, I figured I could do that. You know, I knew a little bit about, I was reading about fake IDs and how to get stuff like that. So I did this whole plan. You know what I'm saying? It, it was like a, a couple month period, you know, where I was leading up to this. And um, eventually I did it. I faked my suicide and I took off to LA. And so I'm in LA. And I'm going down and I'm reading the Washington Post because my case was like big news. You know, like they call me like the Fairfax County LSD kingpin. You know, it was like all over, you know, like the metro section all over the Washington Post. And so I'm going down in L.A., you know, because back then they had like the, 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 the magazine stands where they had all the magazines and all the big newspapers. So I would go every day and I'm going and I'm reading the Washington Post because I'm looking for the thing that says, you know, like LS, Fairfax LSD kingpin, you know, commit suicide. So I saw the first article, right? And that's what it said. It's like Fairfax LSD Kingpin commits suicide, you know? And then I was like, yeah, my fucking plan worked, right? So I kept going, checking out the paper, you know, to see if there's any follow-ups. And then about two weeks later, you know, I went, I got the paper and I opened to the Metro and it like, it like broke my heart because it said, uh, it says U.S. park rangers, you know, drag the river to, for two weeks and don't find a body. So the federal prosecutors said that my suicide was a hoax right? Because they didn't find a body. And I was reading more, right? And then I, I figured it out. What I did was I fucked up. You know, I, I committed my suicide. I staged my suicide on the wrong side of the dam. <laughs> so, 
so so if you had done it, they were going to find you. Basically, is the, the way I just I just you know I, I took everything into account. But that fucking damn, you know, I just I was reading about this. You had you had a note. You had I think you had like an empty bottle of vodka or something you had set up. It was actually pretty well planned, but for the wrong side of the dam, right? I mean, it seems. Yeah, I just missed that one fucking detail. Yeah. Man. So for a twenty-year-old, that's pretty good. I would have missed at least three of the key details. I would have missed more than one. So you have this two-week period where you think you made it. Now it's like, oh fuck, I didn't. I, you know, I, I read a Washington Post story where they said they never did believe it to begin with. I don't know. I mean, I'm not inside their heads. I don't know. I'm sure you weren't either. But when you see that article the first time, you're thinking, like, I'm good. What was your, what was your alias? I'm sure you had a few. But what was your first alias? Do you remember? Oh, man, I, I had a ton, man. I, you know, I, I used to. So I had this thing where I, I ordered all these books. Right. Like back then they had these, they, they call them like subversive presses. Right. So there were all these books, like uh, it was publishers called like Lupanix Press, Paladin Press. And you could buy all these books. Like one of the most famous books that they published was like Anarchist Cookbook, which a lot of people have heard of. Make bombs from. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that so these subversive presses. And um, so I got all these books on um, how to get fake ID you know, through like legitimate means. And there's these books that's called like, you know, Reborn in the United States, uh, Understanding U.S. Identifying Documents, Paper Tripping, One, Two, and Three. So there was like 25 of these books. So I ordered them all, you know, right, right before I was a fugitive and when I was a fugitive. And so what I would do is I would go and um, I would go and I would kind of comb, uh, you know, obituaries, like in, in big major papers, you know, like Washington Post or wherever you know, New York Times, and I would find somebody, I would find somebody that was born in one state and died in another state before they were five. And so what I would do, once I had the information from the obituary, I could write to like the uh, Vital Statistics Bureau and I could get the death certificate. Because for the death certificate, you only need to know three things. You got to know the, uh, you know, the place of death, you know, the date of death and the person's name. So you could get all that information from the obituary. And then once I got the death certificate with the information from the death certificate and the information from the obituary, I had enough information to get the birth certificate. So I would just write to the Vital Statistics Bureau, you know, in whatever state I was in. And you, you got to put five things. You got to put like the person's name, place of birth, date of birth, mother's maiden name and father's name. And so once I had those, I could just say like, you know, whatever, like I'm this person's relative or whatever, put the $8 money order in. And I would do it like through a, a mailbox, like PO box or whatever, you know, mailboxes, et cetera, do it like a suite number or apartment number. And they would send it. And then once I had the birth certificate, I, I was pretty much, you know, home free. I could go like right to the DMV and give them that birth certificate. And just with the birth certificate back then, you could get like what they call a walker's license. You know, like just just the ID, not a driver's license. You didn't. That's all you needed. You know, and I, I was young too, so it was easier because I was young. But yeah, I started getting man. I I got a ton of IDs, man. But um, I did have like uh, a lot of people. They they call me like I had like kind of my name because I had a bunch of IDs with first name Christopher. So a bunch of people um they call me Christopher Haas because eventually I ended up in Texas, and uh, I used to kind of like talk with this Texas drawl. You know, I would call people like, like back then in Texas, they would call people like Captain and Haas, you know, so that's what they used to call me Christopher Haas when I was a fugitive. Yes, that's, I can't, I would love like, as a souvenir, just the, the like, uh, 
get box or a like photo album of just the fake IDs. I think that'd be like a fascinating piece. Yeah, I think so, the feds, the feds probably got them somewhere. I mean, do you have any, I, you know, I read a, a quote from you where you said uh, that you, I mean, this kind of goes along with what you're saying. When you're a fugitive, you had to become somebody else. I mean, in the literal sense, really with the IDs, but even just like personality, did you get kind of a sense of I'm losing who Seth is? Like I, I, I'm, pretending to be somebody else is a full-time job. Like, who am I? Was there any confusion there? Or were you really eyeing the ball the whole time? No, I would say at first, I mean, at first to me, it was kind of, you know, cause I was young, you know, I was like 20, 21, you know, I got, I got, didn't get caught till I was 22. So I was a fugitive for like two years. So at first it was almost kind of like a James Bond, like mission impossible type of thing, you know, cause like I would literally, like I had five different IDs and I, I would like literally become that person. Like I would get the ID out. And I would quiz myself and I'd be like, you know, I'm like uh, Christopher Michael Birchfield. You know, this is my social security number. You know, this is where I would live. And I would like imprint it on my mind. I would say it like five or 10 times. So if a cop did pull me over, I could just say it natural. So, you know, at first I think I kind of, uh, you know, I got off on it because it was almost like, uh, like, you know, look how clever I am. You know, and as like a young man, you know, I, I think I kind of I kind of ate that up in a way. But um. Yeah, as it kind of dragged on, man, I mean, it did get old because everything was was constructed on all these different, you know, half-truths and lies. You know, that when, you, when you're doing something like that, you know, a lot of it is based on truth because, I mean, you are who you are. It's not like you can change your whole personality and who you are. So a lot of it, is, it's based on half-truths and it's based on lies. But then, you know, I'm moving here. I'm in Texas. You know, I'm in St. Louis. I was in California. So then it's almost like, you know, you got to remember, like, who did you tell what? Yeah, you can't. You got to keep the story straight. Yeah, so you know, and and I'm sure, and plus, like I said, I, I you know I was I was smoking weed, you know I was drinking a lot, I was doing psychedelic, so you know I I, I never considered myself a drug addict, but you know I I definitely you know abused certain drugs, you know at different times in my life, you know depending on what was going on, but uh yeah, so after a while, you know it it kind of got, you know it became a drag, like it's like man, and at the same time. I'm actively looking for like an ID, you know, that I can get a legitimate social security card number for, you know, I'm looking for an identity that, that I can move into that can be like my permanent identity, you know, but you know, it, it had to fit a lot, a, you know, a, a, a lot of different criteria to be able to do that, you know, cause, cause without the legitimate social security number, you're just using like fake social security numbers, you know, based off, um, you know, the, like the understanding U.S. identifying documents, like it, it tells you how they break them down, like it goes by state and it goes by year and then the last four are random. So, you know, I was just following this formula to make a social security number. But like I knew because a couple of times I went to banks with the fake ID and the fake social security number and I tried to open bank accounts and like they would run the social security number and they would come back and they'd be like, oh, well, this social security number is wrong. So, yeah, it's, it, there's a limit, there's a ceiling on, the extent to which you can pull this off. And that would be my inclination too. I would want to be like, okay, can't be Justin Spiro anymore. Justin Spiro's a wanted guy that faked his own death, whether or not they believe it, whatever. I have to land on being, you know, uh, Ben Smith, like, and just, and, and just stay there because then you don't have that chaos of 
17 different backstories. Like, you know, Nick Papa Giorgio in Vegas vacation. Like he was just Nick Papa Giorgio. He picked one fake ID and stayed there and had the same one backstory. He's a software guy. Like you, you can't have 17 different IDs going on. It's going to create the confusion. So you, you talk about it's sort of romantic at first and you're James Bond and everything but the talks, you know, and you talked about sort of that fading out. I'm wondering, you know, are you ever uh, at night, 10 o'clock at night, whatever you're in bed, wherever you're at, looking up at the ceiling, like, where does this end? We're looking for an end game. I would find that initial spark fascinating too. But beyond that, it's kind of depressing. Like, you, you can't really see your family. I know your mom, you said in the past, covered for you and they were trying to poke at her. Were you ever melancholy about this after the initial sort of buzz of it wore off? Yeah, no, no. I think, I think as it, as it dragged on, I think I, I really, I, I started drinking more and, um, and then too, like, you know, you know, I was, I was a young dude. So, you know, I was, I was out there, you know, and I'd be dating a lot of different chicks, even though I was a fugitive and stuff like that. And like, sometimes like, you know, when I would get drunk, you know, like, like I'd want to tell, you know, I'd want to tell these women, like I'd want to confide in them. You know I mean? That's just that's, that's some men do, you know, you confide in women. And um, I think that's a pretty natural thing with humans. And uh, yeah, it was just something like, you just want to tell somebody, you just want to tell somebody the truth. You know what I'm saying? And, and and I couldn't because I knew, you know, I knew my freedom depended on me not telling anybody. And plus, plus at the same time, you know, it's not like I was working a regular job. I mean, the whole time I was, you know, as soon as, you know, I, I ran out of money I had probably in the first six months out in California. So then, you know, I went back to Texas and I, I you know, I hooked up with my old weed dealer, Mexican guy. And so I started running weed again. You know, I was running weed from Dallas to St. Louis. And I really kind of started, it was almost like a, my, my second drug dealing career, you know, when I was a fugitive. Did you ever, you said you had this, this temptation to confide in, in women you were dating or pursuing. Did you ever slip up man, woman, whatever context with anybody who didn't know you? I mean, your mom knew you, but who didn't know you, somebody that came into your life post you going on the run, becoming a fugitive. Was there ever one person you confided in or were you two years completely bummed up? No, I actually, I had a friend in Texas that I went to high school with. So, you know, he, he knew that I was a, a fugitive. I mean, and it's also weird too, because until I got caught, I never knew that I was like a top 15 U.S. Marshals list, you know? So even, even my friend, I, I had a friend, actually my friend, he played, played, played guilty to aiding and abetting a fugitive. He just got probation. You know, but but he, you know, because they busted him and actually is because it was him and his girl. I went to high school with both of them and it was kind of fucked up because when the feds went down there, like he wouldn't say anything. And he had just broken up with that girl and she like told him everything. So she basically like snitched him out. You know, they were like high school. Yeah, they were like high school sweethearts. And uh, yeah, and he actually got a case for aiding and abetting me. So, um, yeah, so he knew the whole time. But even like. Like, even like, like we had no idea, you know, that I was like top 15, that I was like this big priority. I mean, still to this day, it baffles me that how as a first time nonviolent offender was I a top, was I made a top 15 most wanted U.S. Marshals list? It's just like, it's like, why would they put all those resources, you know, into that? It's, it's like crazy. And, um, you know, I always thought that, I mean, you know, it was kind of cool, you know, to have the one poster and be top 15 and stuff like that, you know, in a way, you know, for the notoriety and the infamy and stuff like that. And, you know, like, like I still, you know, I still use that to this day. 
And even like I could use that in prison, you know, because in prison, that's like, you know, big stripes and stuff. So people look up to that. But as I was locked up and I started doing Freedom of Information Acts and I started, you know, researching my case and researching everything that happened and kind of piecing it together, I found out that uh, there was this guy. He's actually a Fourth Circuit federal judge in the Fourth Circuit now, like appeal court judge. You know, that's like, you know, besides the Supreme Court, that's like, you know, he's like right below the Supreme Court. So he was actually the assistant head prosecutor in Northern Virginia for my case, right? Then when I fled, he became the head of the U.S. Marshals in the Northern District of Virginia. He was the one who did all the paperwork to make me a top 15 fugitive. And then, you know, then he was a judge. So if you look at the way, you know, advancement in, in law enforcement works, like, you know, everybody knows uh, Rudy Giuliani, right? How did Rudy Giuliani became a household name? He took John Gotti down. So, you know, all these people, they have like these feathers in their cap. And, you know, I'm sure this dude busted, you know, Henry Hudson busted a whole bunch of other people. But, you know, I was like one of those feathers in his cap. And, you know, from my point of view, and whatever, I could be wrong, you know, because, you know, everything happened to me, whatever. But from my point of view, to me, you know, looking at it from where I was at, it looked like basically... He made me a top 15 fugitive just so he could go catch me. So then it would like look good for him. Yeah. So he captured a top 15 fugitive. I mean, uh, I'm, I think you were right the first time. I get the befuddlement. I totally understand that. I get being like, seriously, like there has to be 15 people that killed somebody that like we don't have in custody right now. But at the same time, like you got that wanted poster forever. I Google your name. Anybody Googles your name. They're seeing, you know, most wanted. They're after you. Like you're on the same list as Bin Laden, for God's sake. I mean, it's like, come on, that's pretty badass. I mean, you know, you get to carry that through forever. So I get the befuddlement uh, in real time, but it's actually a fucked up way, kind of cool. So I mean, you mentioned the friend down in Texas as a sort of grandfathered in person that knew, but nobody knew that came into your life after you went on the run was no, no, confided no, no. So mm-hmm. that's, I mean. That's pretty impressive, actually, because I got a big mouth, man. I, I, I would have totally slipped up with somebody, at a, especially if I'm doing drugs and drinking and stuff. I can't believe you actually kept that buttoned up. But and, and despite the, the inherent pressure to, to reveal that, did you ever have like a, like you, you mentioned Frank Abagnale from Catch Me If You Can? He was like dating, like going. If you've read, you have read the book, people out there have read the book, like, you know, the movie touches on it a little bit, but he actually was. Like engaged, developing relationships. I don't think you ever got that far. But did you ever like meet the parents of one of these girls, or was it more kind of bar scene hangout? I mean, no, I don't think I don't think I met anybody's parents. You know, it was never. You know, I, I was dating. You know, I was a young man, so I, yeah. I was kind of I was dating a lot of women. And you know, like I say, I kind of have this thing where, you know, I wasn't I wasn't trying to you know have any attachments. You know, so so I was I was kind of really careful, you know, but I mean, you know, I, I, I had a bunch of girlfriends, you know, I had some girls, you know, that I cared about, you know, some more than others, like any relationship. But uh, yeah, it never it never got to the point where I was like meeting people's parents, you know, I kind of I would I kind of shot like when I was a fugitive, like pictures. I shot away from, you know, camera, I mean, but I shot away from cameras even before that, you know, as soon as when I was like 18, 19 and I started becoming you know, like a, like a bigger drug dealer, you know, cause I follow the dead. So I, I kind of followed like that outlaw, you know, that whole outlaw philosophy. Like I was like, you know, no pictures, you know, nothing in my name. You know, I wanted to like, 
you know, just not leave any type of paper trail or any type of trail at all. You know, like every place or things I would get, I would get other people, you know, to put cars in their name. I would get other people to put houses I rented in their name. So I was already kind of, uh, you know, acclimated to that. But then when I became a fugitive, it just became even more. Yeah, it's it's just incredible. I, I can't like, I can't imagine, I, I get the initial burst out of there. Like you're staring down the barrel of a 20 to life gun. I get the sort of wearing and the and the fading of the romanticism, but what I can't wrap my mind around more than anything else, the thing that has me most befuddled, is a random Tuesday in October, wherever you're at, California, Texas, wherever you're at. Like, what do you what do you do? Like, I mean, it's you know, I know what I do. I go to my job and I have a W two for him, and I come home to my kids, and that's what I do. Like, you you didn't have any of that. Like, well, what do you do all day? Do you like Go to the movies. What does a fugitive do with his time? Well, I mean, I, I was a hustler, so I was I was hustling weed. So that was kind of like my job. You know, that's how I made money. Like, do you so. go to restaurants? Like, do you? Do you yeah, like we go to restaurants. Yeah, we go to restaurants. We yeah. go to bars. I mean, it's not like so I you were out and about. You weren't. Like, yeah, not like hiding. I was hiding out, man. You yeah. know, I mean, I mean, really, really, really in this country. I mean, I was I was like a white male. You know, six foot one, and that time I was probably you know like whatever one hundred eighty pounds. So, I mean, it's I didn't stick out. You know what I'm saying? Especially, you know, when I was hanging out with college kids, you know, hanging out at colleges. So, I, I mean, I blended in. And we had TV, obviously, back then. It's not that long ago, but it is different. I remember in one of your interviews talking about the Brian Laundry case, you know, you had mentioned to an extent it's easier than you would think to just kind of like blend in if you get in the right town, like for a guy to throw a hat on and just kind of blend in. But at the same time, it's a lot harder now than it would have been in 1991. I mean, you're. Social media is ubiquitous. More people have television now, internet. Like yeah. your your face today, if you're on that top fifteen list and you had this famous fake suicide and all that, the backstory is inherently intriguing. I think it would have been harder for you. I don't know if you're at Applebee's if that happened today. I think you might be yeah. a little more underground and probably don't last two years. But yeah, no, I I I have thought about that. I think now. Um... I mean, like, because I have thought, like, you know, nowadays, if I was a fugitive for whatever reason, not that I plan on being, but, uh, you know, I, you would have to be, like, more off the grid, you know, like, hide out, you know, like, whatever, you know, in the, in the mounts. But, I mean, really, in this country, I mean, there's a lot of places where you can disappear, man. I mean, you know, you go to some of those uh, states, like, you know, the Dakotas, you know, or, or out there in kind of that area, or even, like, you know, Northern California, Oregon, Washington. I mean, there there's some some parts of this country that um, there's not a lot of people. You know, you get up in those mountains. You know, like I've spent a lot of time out in Humboldt County on this new docu series I'm working on, and it's like, I mean, you just go up. You know, it's like dirt roads, and you go straight up these mountains. And and these people own they might own like 200 acres. So, I mean, really, you know, if if you really want to hide. I mean, you can hide off off the grid. Yeah, who's checking on those people? It's one of my favorite hypotheticals. Like, I think most people do it. You know, you do the, you're sitting there watching AMC, you're watching The Walking Dead with your girlfriend or wife or whatever. It's like, what would you do if there was a uh, outbreak of zombies? You know, if, if there's an apocalyptic event, like, what would you do? Where would you go? One of the favorite ones is like, hey, if you're on the run, like, what would you do? Like, yeah, my answer was always, it's got to be someone you absolutely trust and that's on board, willing to have your back. 
you got to find a basement somewhere, man, with a crawl space or something. Cause like this whole out in the woods shit, I mean, maybe some people are equipped for that. I'd be yeah. like turning myself in by three o'clock in the afternoon, like the oh, first yeah. day. Yeah, I wouldn't do that. I, I'd have to be in somebody's house. I couldn't, I'm, I wouldn't be like, you know, roughing it. <laughs> no, I'd be in the studio. I'd have to change some things though, because you know, too many people would recognize this beautiful space here. But so uh, put a button on this. Before we move on though to, to the next one, I got to ask, what do you put in a fake suicide note? Do you even remember? Was it was it like this sort of fake no? I think I wrote a reflection. You know, so I wrote a poem. You know, so look, I, I I was always like, uh, you know, I played guitar and and I kind of sung and yeah. I was always like a, a creative dude. You know, you know, so um, I think I wrote a poem. It was something like, uh, you know, journey to the center of the star. You know, wrong person, wrong place, wrong time. They actually published that uh, the suicide note, like the poem that I wrote. I think they published it in the Washington Times. It was was that when they thought you were dead or no? That was actually actually when, when I got caught. Oh, okay. So when I got caught, they did this article before I got sentenced. You know, when I got extradited back to Virginia from St. Louis, the Washington Times did an article on me. Um, it was called uh, "When the Charm Runs Out," and they actually they had published the uh, you know an excerpt of the suicide note. It's incredible to think if you had just gone on the other side of the dam with your staging, like. Yeah, it just would they have given up? You may, you may not be sitting here. You may still be running around somewhere. I mean, yeah, I could I could have right. a whole different life, be a whole different person. Who knows? Yeah, you might be that Ben Smith guy uh, falling into a different identity. So uh, let's transition to this. I mean, I think your story is going to weave in as we go, and feel free to bring that in because it is part of your story. I want to talk about it generally, and also as it relates to your personal experience, life in prison. Um, I will say your series of articles, your column, whatever you want to call it, on Vice, covering a lot of different things, but in large part, the prison system, prison conditions, uh, inequities in prison are fascinating. I think anybody that's interested in semi, even the most minor level of, of criminology, the prison system, things just about life in general, should just, just Google Seth Ferranti, Vice, uh, your column comes up. It's fantastic. I, I, I probably went overboard, man. I read like 25 of your pieces the last two weeks. I uh, get ready for today. But I, I, it's something that you seem to care about, the prison system, sort of the imbalance there. We'll start with what it was like for you. You were there for, I mean, a long time, like 21 years? 21 years. 21 yeah. years. What was it like for you? I'm sure you moved around a little bit, right? Yeah. What was it like for you just generally? And we're going to kind of work into some of the issues from there. Yeah, I'd say, um, I mean, at first, I mean, I, I was, it was kind of like, you know, being thrown into like this foreign world because uh, I first went in 93. So when I first came in um, as a white person, like in the feds on the East Coast, it was like 75% African-American basically, you know, because that was like right after the crack era. I mean, they just like decimated, you know, the African-American com communities like in the late 80s, you know, locking them all up for cracking for like, you know, little tiny amounts of cracking. They were giving them like 10 years. So it was like, it was like all, you know, it was basically like being thrown in into like the hood. You know, that's, I mean, that's the only way I can say it. So, um, yeah, I, I came in, I, I was real cautious. Like my first two years, you know, I, I was kind of getting my bearings you know, I, I didn't really know what to expect. I didn't have any friends or family that were in prison. You know, uh, I had, you know, I just knew what I saw on TV. 
You know what I'm saying? And the TV is like kind of shows like the extremes of, of prison. So, you know, I had no idea what to expect. You know, I didn't want to end up a statistic. I didn't want to end up a victim. So um, really, I, I kind of how I grounded myself and how I kind of learned to do time was um, I read a bunch of books, man. I read, uh, you know, I read like uh, Soledad Brother by George Jackson. I read In the Belly of the Beast by Jack Henry Abbott. I read uh, Life from Death Row by uh, Mamiya Abul-Jamal. These are like all like classic prison, you know, nonfiction books written by prisoners. So, uh, you know, I was my first two years, I was just like reading. You know, I'm always the type of person, like when I want to learn about something, like I read. You know, I, I'm, I'm a voracious reader, so I'll just read and read and read. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't just read one book. I like to read like 25 or 30 books because – you know, I make my own plan, you know, then I might take something from this book, something from this book, something from this book, and I put it all together for my own plan. So that's kind of, that's kind of what I did. And, um, you know, so just kind of watching people, you know, reading, you know, I, I kind of learned how to carry myself because in there, man, it's, it's, it's definitely, I mean, it's, it's sink or swim, man. Like you gotta, you gotta basically like, you know, cause you gotta basically like man up like real, real quick. Like there's no margin for error you know what i'm saying so when when i went there when i went in there i was basically like you know i would say i, w I was kind of like you know i was spoiled you know i was a little spoiled because i was i was you know middle class upper middle class kid so i was spoiled uh you know i was i was probably entitled you know a little bit and um you know but going in there man you you just got to man up because you, you don't have anything in there you know all you basically got is like your word and your balls you know they don't care where you're from they don't care how much money you have you know and actually if you do have money they're going to try to extort you you know they don't care what your reputation you know was on the street it's about you know who you are in there you know it, it was in a way because i came in with so much time you know but i look like a little college kid so like the dudes were like you know, because I, I came in in 93, so I had like a 25-year sentence when I was 22. And so there was still a lot of people from the old law in the 80s, like before the war on drugs and federal mandatory minimums started, you know, and they were, they were doing like whatever, like five, 10 years. You know, it was still half the prison population was like that. So, you know, they're kind of like looking at me like, like, who did you kill? Yeah, like, like what, what are you what, doing here? What did you do? You know, and they're looking at like how I look. And um, so, you know, in in that way, you know, people were kind of looking at me like, like, what the fuck? How did you get 25 years? And then, uh, you know, it's like in prison, you know, I got the infamy from being a fugitive. And, you know, I got I got the infamy from the, you know, the time. But also I, I tell people all the time, right, like I got extremely lucky, like where I ended up. So the first prison I was at, I was like a medium high security prison, which, you know, it's not the top. It's, it's kind of like, you know, right in the middle, like they got the uh, like the supermax is the highest. And then they got the USPs, which is the penitentiaries. Those are like the highs. And then they got the mediums and the lows and then the camps. So, you know, I, I was like, what well, basically like out of five levels, I was at like a level three. That's where I started out. And they called them, you know, you had to fight though. They called them gladiator schools. You know, like in the level fours, like in the USPs, <laughs> yeah. they would say like boys fight, men kill. You know, like you didn't fight there. Like you had to stab somebody. So, you know, I wasn't at that extreme level. You know, and then the, like the super maxes, that's like where they put the, you know, the super hardcore, you know, crazy people or the big gang leaders and stuff. But um, I got lucky because when I came in, I went to FCI Manchester. It was a fairly new prison. It had just been built maybe like a year before. So they were just filling it up. 
And I came in, and when you come into prison, the first thing they ask, they're like, where are you from? And you know, I, I was born and raised in California. So even though my case was from Virginia, you know, I was like, I'm from California. So they're like, okay, we're going to get your homeboys, you know, let your homeboys know. So, you know, that's what they do. Whenever you get to where you're going, it's like your own race and the people from where you're from, they come check you out and they do, it's called a paperwork check. So they have what they call like a paperwork party. So they come and, uh, you know, you have like your court documents, it's called like a PSI. So when you get there, you have to show your PSI. Because what they're going to check, you know, because I was in a medium, so I wasn't in a lower camp, you know, in a lower camp, you know, there's more like snitches, you know, pedophiles, you know, people with like fucked up charges, you know, because that's where they put them so they don't get stomped. You know, the medium, you can still get stomped or checked in or whatever. So immediately, I say I'm from California, and I'm in Kentucky, right? So the only dudes from California are like these Mexican gangbangers, you know, they call them Serenos, and they're basically like under the Mexican mafia. And anybody that's been to prison knows, you know, like in the feds and, uh, you know, a lot of prisons, like the Mexican mafia are considered like, you know, like the elite prison gangsters, you know, like they're the most feared, like the most vicious, you know, gangsters, the Mexican mafia. So the Sereno guys are Mexican-American gangbangers, mostly from like Southern California. That's why they call them Serenos, because that means Southern. And so... They're like the only dudes from California there. And there's only like five or six of them, but they got like big respect on the compound because you know, like, you know, you don't have beef with one of them. If you have beef with one, you got five, you have beef with all five and they're all going to bring knives. Like they don't play. So these dudes immediately come and they're the dudes that check my paperwork, you know, cause I'm from California. So, you know, I got to show them my PSI and they make sure I'm not a snitch or a pedophile, you know, child molester or whatever. And, uh, you know, they're okay. And they're like, come on, you know, so I start walking a yard with them. You know, like right, right so off. You the were bat. an honorary Sereno, or did I say that right? So yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So right off the bat, I'm walking with these dudes, and then so so that's like one thing. So look, I'm walking with these vicious Mexican gangbangers. I got 25 years, and then the other thing that happened that was like extremely lucky in my case, you know, which I can look at now. I mean, when all this is happening, I mean, I, I don't know. You know, I got like blinders on. I'm just trying to, you know, whatever. I'm like, whatever I got to do to survive, I'm gonna do it. You know, that's like the mentality you got to have when you go in there with a lot of time because it's like a fishbowl, right? But, but, you know, now as an older man, I can kind of look back and I can kind of say, man, I was kind of lucky in this regard. So the other thing that happened is, you know, I'm, I'm in Kentucky, so I'm on the East Coast. So there's a lot of mobsters there, bunch of mobsters, you know, from like New York, Philly, Jersey, you know, a ton of mobsters. I got an Italian last name. So as soon as they find out all the mobsters start coming up to me they're like you know they want to find out like hey where's your family from you know uh, who's your dad who's your grandpa you know we're, we're we're you know and and i had some of you know on 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 my dad's side you know some of my family they're like from boston you know so i you know i tell them i'm like oh yeah they're from boston you know what i'm saying and uh and you know that None of them are mob related or whatever, but you know, some of these dudes are like, okay, you know, I'm like a young Italian kid and I got a lot of time. So they kind of take me, you know, under their wing basically. And so uh, that's why I say like, when I look back now, I was extremely lucky because just the prison where I happened to go, I had the California connection with the Mexican gangbangers. And because of my Italian last name, I had the mobster connection because I was on the East coast and there was a lot of mob guys. And Besides the Mexican mafia dudes, like the mobsters, you know, because all the mystique, I mean, they're really respected in prison. You know, not because 
they're like badasses or they're going to beat you up. It's more because the power they have on the street, the power their organization has on the street. Yeah, that carries through to some extent. Yeah. That's fascinating. So you, you kind of had like the uh, by proxy uh, thrown upon you street cred of the two most powerful allies you could possibly have. I mean, that if, you're, if you have to be in prison, I feel like that's a pretty good break. I pulled this quote. I, th- I found this uh, pretty interesting about life in prison. So we'll have Paul throw that up there for us, uh, if you can, Paul. Because I, I found this one really interesting. So he's going to dial that up. Just about uh, life in prison, uh, you know, generally. Uh, this is, I thought it was an interesting take. Okay, so here we go. This is, this is you talking about, I, th- I love this comparison. Quote, being in prison is like being on a cruise ship minus any amenities. You can watch all the nastiest viruses take hold and spread. When a cop, visitor, or inmate transferring in from a new prison brings in a new bug, it sweeps through the compound rapidly. When I was in prison, I remember long lines at medical during flu outbreaks. The staff would just tell you to go back to the unit and sleep it off. So, I mean, this issue reflecting on, in your article that I pulled, the trauma was the COVID outbreak, the COVID situations in prison. But I want to relate that to... The general attitude is it? Are you a Shawshank Redemption guy by chance? Have you seen that? You know, yeah, yeah, no, I love that movie. Great one, I and mean, everybody likes that one, right? That, that that has seen it, which is everybody at this point. The relationship portrayed there generally is highly adversarial between the prison staff and the inmates. Was that in general your experience? You you talk about you have you have the the, the Mexican crew, the mob crew, they're in your corner. You did okay in that regard. You seem to struggle a little bit more. Uh, with the guards, maybe, or were they? I mean, it seems like they were no cup of tea. Uh, generally, what was your take? Yeah, on? no, it's 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 definitely. I mean, it's 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 a us against them mentality, you know, because they're they're kind of like your keepers, you know. So the weird thing about prison, it's like it's um. What I what I learned, especially like over the years, because it's like a scarcity of resources in there, you know. So, like that's how. The guards kind of pit races you know, in, in different gangs and different ethnicities, you know, against each other, you know, that's kind of how they control because, you know, really, if you got like a thousand prisoners, you only got like a hundred guards. I mean, so really, so it's really like, that's what they do. They kind of pitch you against each other. And um, it's crazy too, because I, I was in all these Southern, you know, not, not Southern, but like I was in Kentucky, West Virginia, you know, kind of rednecky, you know, areas. And like the guards, man, I mean, they, they were like really, really racist, you know, because you would have all like these East Coast black dudes from like New York, you know, D.C., Philly. And the, the way some of these redneck guards would treat them, dude, like, you know, really like sometimes, you know, I was glad that I was white, you know, because I could just kind of like move under the radar. They didn't really fuck with me, you know, but but yeah, the, it was definitely a us against them mentality. And um they just have that attitude, like you're just a number. Like, like I can still recite my prison number to this day, like one eight two zero five zero eight three. I mean, because in there, they don't care what your name is, man. They don't care that I'm Seth Ferrant. They just want to know your number. You know, anytime you identify, what's your number? You know, give me your ID card. What's your number? You know, and you're you're not a person to them. You're just a number because the way, like, when they train these guys, and 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 let's be honest too, like these dudes. I mean. A lot of these dudes, they just have high school diplomas. I mean, you know, there's not, maybe some of the people in the administrative positions have college degrees, but like, like a lot of these dudes, man, it's, it doesn't take a lot of training. Really, I, I found out that a lot of the guards, like really, they want to be like state police or something like that, but they just can't pass the tests. 
that you get like the dregs of guard society and law correction society. And and also too, like with the feds, it's it's a lot of families. Like, dude, I saw a lot. It'd be like you would see like three generations. You know what I'm saying? In a lot of these rural areas. And they all of, failed the test. Yeah. All three generations failed. Because a the lot test. of these, a lot of these, a lot of these prisons, you know, especially the federal prisons, like in the 90s when they built so many, you know, they prop up these rural communities. They prop up, you know, the economy. So, um, yeah, man. I, I mean, I was saying, I mean, you got good. I mean, some of the guys were fair. I mean, they were okay. You know, just like anything, you had a few bad apples. But, and I'm not saying individually, like a lot of these people, they were okay people. They weren't corrupt. But the system that they worked for and supported by working for them, you know, and getting a, a li- making a living from them, I mean, the whole system, it was corrupt. You know what I'm saying? The, the yeah. whole way the feds. So, you know, like, like I say, I'm not saying, you know, a lot of these guys, whatever, they were just doing their job. But they were doing, you know, it's like the same thing, like when you look at like the Nazis. And the Nazis, you know, like when they catch these old guys now, they say, I was just doing my job. Yeah, but look what your job was. Yeah. So it's kind of it's like the same thing. Like, you know, why, why would you support something like that? And maybe now it's changing a little bit. But, um, yeah, man, it, it was a, a, a definite, like, I mean, like dudes would literally, like, they'd shake down your locker. And if, like, you had a tomato from the chow hall, which was considered contraband, like, they, they would take it, like. Like, dude, do you really care? Like, if I have a tomato in my <laughs> yeah. locker, like, is that going to hurt you? It's, the, it's a control thing, though, right? Isn't yeah, that yeah. Like, you know, a lot of them, they, they would power trip. You know, not all, not all of them. Like, some of the guys, like, we would call them, like, super cop, you know? Like, we knew the cops because when you're in there, you, you know the cops. You know the guards. So, like, when certain guards are on, like, they just stay in the office. They're just doing their eight hours. You know, they just don't want any violence or anything to happen. Like, right. some, of the, some of the cops will come out. They'll tell you. Because what they do, like, uh, every three months, like, they do, like a, like, a quarter change. So they bring, like, a new guard in. It's not like you have the same guard all the time. Every three months, they do a quarter change. So, you know, they rotate them. So, like, some guards would come in, you know, right off, and they would say off the bat, they'd be like, look, man, I'm just here to do my eight hours. They'll say, like, you know, I'm not trying to write no shots or, I'm, you know, I don't care about this. Because, you know, like, no fights, no violence, you know, drugs, whatever you do, keep it on the yard. Don't keep it in the unit. You know, they would tell you straight up, but then other guards would come in, man, and they just like, they would rip the unit up. They'd take all your stuff. And like in there, man, you got like really limited stuff, man. So when you do get something, you know, I was at places like they didn't even have microwaves. So we would have to cook with stingers, you know, which a stinger is, it's basically like a, a little metal thing that they make it. So when you put it in water, you plug it in and it boils the water. I've never even heard of that. I guess yeah. Yeah, it's be, called a stinger. I'm not right? going to nod like I know what you're talking about. I've yeah, never heard so, of, no so, idea what that is. So that boils water. So yeah. let's say like if you got some rice or you got a sandwich or something, or you can cook it in the hot water, you know what I'm saying, yeah. to heat it yeah. up. You know, because some places I was at didn't even have microwaves. So, I mean, they just take like your little, your little like amenities, you know, your little things that make life more bearable, that make life easier. And it's just like, it's like, come on, man. You know, yeah. as long as I'm not, Front, putting you on front street as long as I'm putting out there. Why would you just go and take all yeah, my shit? I'm not going to shank anybody with my little stinger kit. I mean, come uh, on. I mean, I, yeah, I, I think like, I mean, I've never been in prison, but I mean, it does remind me of just being in college uh, in the dorm. Like everyone had a different RA, the resident advisor. And like ours was really cool. We had a really good one on fifth floor Troutman up there freshman year where, you know, he didn't care that we got drunk and had, you know, we're 18, we're way underage, but he didn't care that we had alcohol in the dorms. He would just tell us flat out, like, Keep the music kind of down, 
uh, you know, don't get in any fights in the hallway. Like, just keep it reasonable, and I'm not going to bother you. And you had other RAs going, like, door to door doing random checks, which is oh, yeah, yeah. like, I mean, not to compare. I mean, I'm sure your prison situation was a little no, different. No, I mean, it's similar. But it's it's, it's similar. mentality, right? Yeah, very similar. Yeah, people get off on the power, and some people are like, Okay, I have it, but I weigh it. And down. some people are just <laughs> you know? some people are just nosy, man. Yeah, they're just nosy. They want to know your business. They want to be in your business. So, uh, you know, I, I I just always thought it was crazy, like like some of the COs, you know, like the extents they would go to. And you know, like I say, a lot of them were racist. So a lot of them would come on the block, and and they didn't really fuck with the white dude, but they would terrorize a black, you know. And and some of them too, it's like they would do stuff like they do stuff just to get a reaction. You know, because it's like they come to work and maybe like in their home life is like miserable or whatever. I mean, I don't know. So they would come to work to like fuck with you to get a reaction so they could like have an outburst or put you in the hole or hit the deuces. Like when, when you hit the deuces, that's like like if there's a fight or something, they hit the, the deuces like on their walkie talkie. So you hit the deuces. It's like the body alarm and all the other cops, you know, come running. So like some of the dudes, it's like they would just come in there like they were looking for a problem. And, you know, most of the time I avoided that stuff. But I mean, I would witness that stuff all the time. And a lot of times it was usually like a white guard and a black prisoner. Yeah. I mean, I. Who would ever thought that the justice system would be unkind to POCs, right? I mean, it's, you're blowing my mind for sure. I mean, it's just kind of typical of what we hear. And it's interesting hearing it directly from someone that saw that. Even on a like non-systemic level, just a more acute level, something you see every day. I want to talk, we talked a little bit about, uh, in a less structured form, the hierarchy in prison. Just, you know, you mentioned... Uh, being cast down with the sodomites, to use the Shawshank reference, like you had the people in those prisons that were kept separate for their own survival because they would get pounded. And then you talked about you, you were the mafia Don, you know, you had the Mexicans in your corner and the Italians in your corner, no one fucked with you, and then everything between. Now, we did create a graphic for this. I'm going to ask Paul to put it up, but I feel like I'm 96 years old at the ophthalmologist appointment and I'm trying to read the bottom line. I don't know if you'll be able to see this. I, I can read that, man. The audience can see it great. For those of you, uh, everyone but Seth and I, you know, you're in the audience. It looks beautiful to you. We're looking at this on like a, a quarter screen, but we can see it. So the prison social hierarchy chart, this was sort of my take on it, what I outlined. Uh, look at that. Now that's beautiful. Nice, fat, and big. Great job. See, Paul, Paul's learning fast here. So the prison social hierarchy chart, this was my take on it, and you can blow it up. You can affirm it. So we do have some audio listeners, Seth, so I'll read it out. Very top of the chain, serial killers and murderers. No one really fucks with them. This is my take. This is not fact. This is not sourced. This is how I took it. Serial killers and murderers, no one's fucking with them. The second rung would be, I think, where you would land. You know, you were a drug dealer. Like, didn't kill anybody, nonviolent crime, but, like, you know, a you didn't victimize anybody per se. You were, you were slinging drugs. Next level, robbers, burglars, maybe not as cool, but you're not like hitting little kids and stuff. Abusers, which is a wide term, but just any form of abuse you can really think of. And then rapist is the bottom rung. And if you want to go sort of a subset bottom rung, a child rapist, I think would be the lowest of the low. Is that kind of a fair picture? Did I get anything wrong? Does it look good? What's your um, take on that? Yeah, it, at the top, of the prison hierarchy is the, um, is the, the gangs, man, the, the, the gangs, you know, at, at the top is like what they call the shot callers, right? So there's the shot callers are usually, you know, the leaders of the race-based gang, 
you know, so you got like Mexican mafia, you got like Aryan brotherhood, you got like black Panthers, you know, stuff like that, you know, and then it even goes down to like, you know, bloods, crips, Latin Kings, you know, gangster disciples, you know, Aryan circle. I mean, there's all types of gangs. It's all race-based. So those dudes are really kind of at the top, top of the food chain. And depending on how many numbers they have on the compound, like for, for, for the white boys, right? So what they have, each, each uh, you know, race is basically in, like it's called a car. So like, you know, in, in a prison, like you got all the white boys, they call it the white boy car. You know, so the white boys are in charge, you know, of, of cleaning their car, you know, and making sure, you know, there's no like snitches, you know, pedophiles, you know, rapists, stuff like that. But so in the white boy car, whoever, let's say if the Aryan circle, if they got like 20 members on the compound, then usually their shot, their, their leader, their shot caller runs the white boy car. You know what I'm saying? Because it's all based on numbers. And, and this stuff can change, too, because if the Aryan Circle dudes, like if they do something, they all get locked up, you know, then someone else comes and moves the vacuum. Or maybe they move a bunch of dirty white boys in, you know, and they kind of take over, you know, or, or different, you know, uh, white prison gang. So that, that's kind of how that works. And then I would say the, the main thing, it's like the, the, pe- the most respected dudes, you know, besides a gang member, like the big thing in there, it's like, you know, the, the quote unquote, the solid convict. You know, the, the solid convict is a guy, you know, he, he, he's not a snitch. You know what I'm saying? So his, his paperwork is good. You know, he adheres to the prison rules, you know, the, the prison mentality, the prison mindset, you know, death before dishonor. You know, a solid con is, you know, if someone disrespects him, you know, he's going to get a weapon or he's going to jump on him. You know, he's going to fight. Like, you can't be a solid con. You can be, like, a, a hell of a dude, a good dude. A, you know, you didn't snitch on your case and everything. But if you won't fight, you know, or you're a pussy, you know, then you're not a solid con, man. You're, you know, people are going to shy away from you, you know, because in there, like, they call it roll call, right? You know, like, sometimes if something happens, you know, they'll say, like, all the white boys got to be on the yard. So, like, you got to, it's roll call. Like, you got to go on the yard. You know, if, like, something's happening or whatever, you know, you got to support your race because that's a common denominator. There, Your skin is your, is your, basically, your skin color is your flag. You know, and they got all types of different rules, like, you know, different, different prisons. Like, especially, you know, the higher level you're at, the more the rules are adhered to. You know, the lower you get, you know, the rules are kind of more in flux. But, you know, I mean, basically, like, like in a, a USP or, like, you know, a level four yard, you know, like a high security prison, like, you know, a black dude and a white dude, they can't get into dispute. You know, let's say, let's say the, the white dude does something, you know, to a black or Mexican, they can't put hands on the white dude. So the, the black or Mexican, you know, they got to go complain to their people. Then their shot caller goes to the, to the white shot caller. And he says, hey, you know, your dude was in the wrong. He did this. Either he stole something or whatever. He didn't pay a drug debt or whatever it is. Or he didn't pay his gambling debt, you know, whatever it is. And then it goes back down the line. So the shot caller, you know, he tells his people, the unit reps or whatever, hey, you got to go discipline this dude or you got to go make him this right or it's going to be a race riot. You know what I'm saying? This entire thing is based on race. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. So it's like, have you seen American History X? I mean, that's kind of yeah, what, yeah, yeah, yeah. that depiction seems to ring true then. It's like, they resent if you are even really talking to somebody in the other group. It's kind of like you're like a traitor almost. It's, yeah. it's so look, so look, I had this, uh, 
you know, I'll tell you this little uh, story, and then, then I'll go back to the hierarchy chart. But I actually, you know, about 10 years into my bid, you know, I started writing. I started writing books. You know, I started writing articles, and I decided I wanted to be a writer, you know, about six, seven years in. And um, I started writing. You know, when I first came in, like, I, I was around a bunch of mafia guys, so I would get my mom and my girl to order me all the mafia books. So I could read, you know, because I was with these dudes, but I wanted to read more about them. I was, you know, curious. And then I was around a whole bunch of Colombian drug lords. So, you know, I'd get my mom to order me all the books. And then, you know, like in the mid-90s is like when Gangster Rat was blowing up. And like a lot of the dudes I, I was locked up with, you know, they were like, you know, being, you know, they became kind of a part of the like the lyrical lore of hip hop. You know, and they would be name dropped in verse. And, uh, you know, you would hear this and they'd be like, oh, yeah, that dude's over on B Block. And so I would ask my mom or my girl, I'd be like, yo, try to find me books on these dudes. And there was no book, right? So that's how I started writing about like the crack era gangsters, like the African-American drug lords. And when I first started doing that, it was crazy because the white dudes, like the white gang dudes would come to me. And like I was there, I never joined a gang or whatever, you know, whatever. I'm, I'm white. So that's, that's like my clique or whatever. I'm a white dude. I'm in the white boy car. But, you know, I was never into the gang shit, you know, because I played sports. I played basketball with the black dudes. You know, I played uh, soccer with the Mexicans. So I was kind of versatile in that regard, you know, because I was always real athletic. But the white gang leader dudes, like, they would come to me and they'd be like, you know, like, what's up, man? Why are you writing a, these books about black dudes? You know, and I would tell them straight up. I'd say, check this out, man. I'd say, you know, no offense, but when you guys bring heroin on the yard, I go, you guys sell it to whoever, right? It don't matter, right? Money's yeah. green, right? You sell it to black, Spanish, whatever. And they'd be like, yeah. I go, well, look, I write these books. I make money off these books. So I go, what are you going to do? You're going to knock my hustle? And once I started telling them to like that, they couldn't say anything. They couldn't say anything. So they would like back off me, you know? And so that's kind of, you know, that, that's kind of a, a, little, a little story about race, you know, dynamics in there. Because like I say, you got all these gang leaders you know, they, they preach all that stuff. But at the same time, like if they got drugs, if they need drugs and a black dude has it, they'll go get it from a black dude. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a weird, it's more like a control thing. I think, you know what I'm saying? Almost kind of like in society, I think society, I mean, they, it's race-based, but in society, it's also economic-based, you know, but now, um, so jumping back to that hierarchy chart, you know, at, at the bottom. So, you, you know, throw that back up there, Paul. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. So, you know, you got, you got the gang leaders, you got the gangs. You know, then basically you have, like, you know, the so-called solid cons. And the solid cons could be, they could be drug dealers. You know, they could be, like, armed robbers. You know, they can be, like, organized crime, you know, mafia, whatever. Then, uh, you know, you start going down to the bottom, right? And then the bottom, like, basically what you got, like. We got that one, right? Yeah. The rapist, Rape, child rapist. But the rapists aren't the lowest. So, really, it's kind of like, uh, you know, people that, like, abuse women. That's frowned upon. Rapists, frowned, and this is the order too. So, you know, people that abuse women, rapists, child molesters, and snitches. So snitches are lower than somebody that raped a kid. Yeah, the, I mean, I mean, they're they're all kind of, you know, I, I had a lot of arguments with different dudes in, in different places about that, but I would say, yeah, snitches are, are down at the bottom, you know, because. Because a lot of dudes, I mean, you know, they're going to punish any of them. But a lot of dudes are going to say, like, you know, they're going to say, like, somebody who's a pedophile is, like, sick. 
you know, like in their brain. Right. Like they're fucked up in their brain. Right. You know, yeah, they're still going to smash them. But they're saying, yeah, they're, they're mentally fucked up in the brain. They're going to say a snitch is worse because a snitch is just like a selfish, conniving motherfucker who's going to fucking do something and do whatever he can to get out of it. That makes sense. There's a little bit more uh, cognizance of guilt. and Yeah, and but I mean, still, game. they're they're all getting ran off the yard. They're all getting <laughs> yeah. smashed. So the whole, like, anytime, it's, it's almost cliche. It probably is cliche at this point. But anytime you see any story like this, uh, so-and-so is arrested or tried, convicted for sex crimes against children. And you go to the comment section. I'm a big comment section guy, Seth. That's my biggest thing. I don't care what the story is. I, I you just you know when it's going to be a bloodbath. But everybody always says in those stories in particular, he's going to have fun meeting Bubba, and, you know, for the next 16 years or whatever the, yeah. the sentence is. That's a real thing. I mean, is there? Well, no. Or is it just I mean, catching a beating? Like, are to, they to a certain the extent, to a certain extent, it can be. But really. As more as they, you know, because the feds just started locking up everybody, dude. That, like, look, when I went to the feds, there was like 50,000 people in the feds in 1993. When I got out of the feds in 2014, there was like 225,000 people. So the feds started locking up everybody. As they lock up more people, and, you know, really in the 90s, this was like incarceration nation, right? So as they lock up more people, they started making protection yards, Right. They call them like sensitive need yards or they call them like like PC yards, protective custody yards. So they start putting, you know, because at first there wasn't as many of these dudes in, you know, or, or people didn't know, you know, what their crimes were or whatever, you know. But if they did find out, you know, they would get smashed. But, you know, as soon as these people get smashed, because really that's a prison's job, the prison guard's job, the prison administrator's job is to protect the people in prison. That's their main number one job. You know, all they're, all they're worried about, they're worried about making sure we're all there. That's why they have counts. They call them counts all the time. All they do is fucking make us line up in our cells and they fucking count us like fucking five, six times a day. They have like all these scheduled counts, you know, like 10 a.m. count, 4 p.m. count, you know, midnight count, 3 a.m. count, 5 a.m. count. So they wake you up to count? Yeah, sometimes they do. Yeah. I mean, they might sleep. You, you can sleep at night because you're usually locked in the cell, but they'll want to see some movement. So they'll bang the flashlight against the door until you like move. Oh, OK. Yeah. And, or, or if you they, like if you're covered up, like they, you can't be covered up, they'll bang the flashlight until they can see like some flesh. Gotcha. So they don't want you the, the scarecrow under the, the sheet yeah, like yeah. in Hollywood, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. So but but basically that's their job. They want to count you. They want to make sure you're there and then they want to make sure nobody gets killed. So that's their two major concerns. You know, and then, you know, third, they want to make sure there's no riots. They want to, you know, order, run an orderly, orderly and safe institution. So, you know, as, as more of these people would get put in the system and people would find out and they would get killed or stomped or whatever, smashed, you know, they started making these yards, you know, basically like protection yards. And so, you know, now like in the feds and I pretty much all state joints, I mean, they're like, they, they call them their PC yards or sensitive needs yards. So they have, they have like all the pedophiles. You know, or if people had a problem, like what they call mainline, you know, that's like the thing in prison, like the thing in prison, it's like, like a lot of dudes have been in prison, you know, that's kind of like, like you hold your head on that. You're like, I walk, I walk the yard, I walk mainline. That means like you were in general population, you know, cause that's, you know, if you're not in general population and like you're in PC or you're like on a, a special needs yard or you're like in a protection unit, you know, and that's like a, a, if you're in that, that's like. There's a you reason know, you're required. Yeah, it's yeah. it's looked down upon, you know? And like I say, it could be somebody, maybe they're not a pedophile or they're not a snitch, 
but maybe they got a beef with a gang and the gang has put a, a you know, a green light on them and put a hit on them. And so the prison puts them in a protection yard just because the, the gang is so prevalent and they know if they put them on a mainline yard, they're going to get killed. You know, and I'm, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a person, perfect example of that. And it's, it's a thing that I wrote about too. Everybody knows Whitey Bulger. So, you know, and everybody knows uh, Whitey Bulger, you know, Whitey Bulger was basically, you know, a snitch for like, you know, 20, 30 years. That's why he had that long run. You know, he worked with the FBI agent and whatever. He always claimed that the FBI agent worked for him. But, you know, any law enforcement criminal relationship that lasts that long, you know, the information is going both ways. I mean, that's just common sense to know that. So he was in, in the feds, he was in this yard called Coleman 2, which is like a known protection yard down in Florida called Coleman 2. And so he was okay there. He was there for a long time. As soon as they put him up in, uh, I don't know where the yard where he got killed. It was like West Virginia or Hazleton or one of those on the East Coast. As soon as they moved him up there, right, he got killed. He was in the general population when they moved him. Yeah. But you know what they do too. So look, when you go into these prisons, like they, they, they give you like, uh, you got to talk to these people. They're called SIS. So they're like, that's like the prison FBI, the prison investigators. So you've got to talk to these people before they go in the yard. And they ask you, they're like, is there any reason, you know, that you shouldn't be let in general population? You know, a lot of dudes are snitches and, and you know, they'll say, you know, they don't want to tell them they're a snitch. So, you know, because they don't have all your court documents. Sometimes they might, sometimes they might not. They don't know everything that you did or you didn't do. You know, they review these people all day. So they're just going to take your word for it. So, you know. They'll ask you, like, if you got any separatists, they'll ask you, like, who you run with, like, gang-wise. You know, they'll ask you, like, if you testified or, you know, told on it, cooperate against anybody. You know, and, and like a lot of dudes, like a lot of dudes, even if they did, they'll lie, you know, because, like, you know, their pride comes into it or whatever. And so then they go, okay, so they let him on the yard. So that's like, you know, even that Whitey Bulger situation, like, they know what was up with Whitey Bulger, but they probably screened him. And he was like, no, I'm good. I can go to the yard. But it's Whitey, though. They should know better with the Whitey Bull case. But. So, you know, but they put him on the yard, and, you know, he, he got whacked, you know, and, like, whatever. It was pretty brutal. But, you know, that's what they say, too. You know, live by the gun, die by the gun. You talked about the sort of the lowest of the low, and one of them I think that is highly prevalent in recent times is Harvey Weinstein. And I told you I went through a big library of Seth articles leading up to this. And this is one of the quotes I pulled from an article. You were talking to an inmate. You didn't give his full name, but he was simply known as Andre. So here's Andre, an inmate in Maryland's take on Harvey Weinstein. Most person of color prisoners thought Weinstein wasn't going to receive a long sentence. The double standard in sentencing convicted criminals is real. Weinstein has to prepare for life as a prisoner with a rape conviction. This label places him in a different light in prison at the very bottom of prison social fabric. You will be shunned or harmed by most and extorted by the others. The only real chance you will have is to pay for protection and hope they honor the contract. That's Andre, an inmate in Maryland, talking about Harvey Weinstein, post-conviction, pre-incarceration. Is that pretty accurate? I mean, someone like Harvey Weinstein... I don't care what he tells the guy at the, on the intake form. Everyone knows who that fuck is, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, you guys yeah. have televisions in there, right? I mean, it's someone like Weinstein coming in. I mean, that's where no fake suicide note. You might write the real suicide note and take care of that. If, I, if I'm Harvey Weinstein, we'll get, yeah. we'll get to the other uh, 
<laughs> the other no, famous definitely, case man, later, definitely. Uh, you know, but like I say, they he was probably he's in the projection yard. You know, he's in PC. He's not walking main lines. But he never he's could not, though. He. Yeah. What I was going to ask was how long does he last? If he's if he's walking the yard, does he make it the to day only, two? The only way that he is going to last is if someone starts extorting him because this is what they do too. So let's say they got somebody like him, like he's basically like a mark, like he needs protection, right? So there might be some dude, he's going to push up on him and he's basically going to make him his bitch. He's going to be like, you're my bitch. You know, you're going to, he knows he got money. So he's like, you're going to put money on my account. You're going to send money to my family and I'm going to make sure none of these dudes, you know, fuck you up. And so then they protect them. Like they extort them, you know, and it's, it's like soft extortion in a way, but it, you know, it's still extortion. And then, like I say, if, if Harvey ever misses a payment or whatever, you know, then he's just going to, you know, tell the people like this dude ain't under my protection no more. And it's going to be like somebody else is going to try to extort him. So, I mean, they do that in prison, like and they'll even pass dudes like that around. Is there honor among thieves? Like, is it is it a I mean, I know case by case, but is there some honor among thieves where the guy extorting you as long as you make the payment really will have your back? Like, is that something you can even rely upon? Generally? Yeah, no, I mean, I won't say it's 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 not honor among thieves. It's like. uh you know, as, as long as it suits that person's purpose. Yeah. But you, you would trust the guy if you're Harvey Weinstein, he's coming up to you. I mean, he doesn't have any choice. Yeah. Cause you're I mean, that that's, that's yeah. a big ass to beat. Too. He doesn't, I mean, he doesn't have any choice. You know what I'm saying? Because I mean, prison, it's, it's, it's all wolves man. it's all shark. And he's, he's going into that shark tank with his little Walker. I love that the guy is suddenly deeply infirmed for his sentencing. Like the, the, the guy's been uh, raping everybody in Hollywood for years, but the second he gets busted, now he's he's crawling into the courthouse. That was that was kind of interesting. Sort of the flip side, the preferential treatment, the the gold star treatment that you get, not because they're protecting you, but because of who you are in a more favorable light. This was a different article. You you quoted this prisoner, uh, actually a former prisoner, he had since been released about Paul Manafort. I thought this was really interesting. So he's talking about Paul Manafort, famously uh, advisor to Donald Trump, and uh, is convicted and and gets sort of a, what was perceived as a light sentence. This is Brandon Greer quoted in one of your articles, a former inmate in Indiana. Quote, Paul Manafort got 47 months in prison. Are you fucking with me? I could sit on my ass for 47 months and not bat an eye. This son of a bitch lied to banks, didn't pay his taxes and all kinds of other shit. And we have a prison system full of dope dealers doing five years to life. It makes no sense to me. Rich people get away with whatever they want. All these son of a bitches are on the same team, the Democrats and the Republicans. So that's the end quote. Brandon Greer railing against this type of thing. I mean, he was in that case talking about Paul Manafort in particular, but was sort of a a generalized attack on the system and its preferential treatment. Do you buy that? Did you see in your experience or from your experience covering it post incarceration? Is that a real thing where somebody like Manafort, they get a lighter sentence. We can all see the sentence, but once they're behind bars, are they sort of protected by the guards? Do you buy that there's some politician telling the the warden, Hey, I'll, I'll get you box seats to the Yankees. If you go easy on Paul, like do you buy anything there in terms of the imbalance? No, I think once they're in the system, no, nah, once they're in the system, I don't, I don't think they're, the only thing that's going to get you preferential treatment in the system is money. You know what I'm saying? And that's not money to the guard, you know, unless you're having the guards like bring you in stuff. 
you know, which that can happen too. But I'm saying it's 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 money to like the prisoners with influence. The extortion. That's, yeah, that's gonna get, Basket. you know, soft extortion. But yeah, definitely in 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 court, because this is what I always thought, you know, as, as someone, you know, who got 25 years, um, you know, 22 for basically being, you know, I don't, I don't think I was that big a drug dealer in the big scheme of things, you know, for my age, yeah, I was a big drug dealer, but, you know, I was nowhere near a Pablo Escobar or anything like that. So, uh, you know, the way I've always looked at it, it's like when politicians or law enforcement people get busted for something, they do get light sentences, you know, because they were part of the court system that sentenced them. Whereas someone outside that system, like me or anybody else, we get hammered. And to me, that's always been like, uh, you know, it, it should be like the opposite. Because if, if your job is to like uphold justice and you violate, you know, that position or, or, or that, uh, you know, truth or whatever that you're supposed to uphold, you should get punished worse. In yeah. my, in my, it's in a my greater opinion. betrayal of yeah, a crime against society. Because you're, you're faking, you're acting like, you know, at least like a mafia dude, he's not acting like he's not a mafia dude. He's a mafia dude. He's a gangster. You know what I'm saying? You know, and, and you got like a lot of these law enforcement people and these politicians or people on the other side, and they're, you know, they're violating, you know, the sanctity of their office by doing corrupt shit on the side for personal gain. So to me, that's worse than the mafia dude. I mean, you know, that's just me. I mean, maybe, maybe I'm right. You know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe some people disagree. But I'm like, you know, if you're a law enforcement person and you're using your position as a law enforcement to do dirt and make money on the side, I mean, to me, that makes you more evil than the dude that's an outright criminal, you know, because you're manipulating the system and you're manipulating your position, you know, and you're really a criminal with a bat. So what is worse, a criminal with a badge or a criminal? I'm with you. I mean, you're Seth Ferrante. You get out in 2015. You go away as a 21-year-old. You're, you're gone, or 20, 21-year-old. You're gone for 21 years. Incarcerated a long time for no prior record. You're essentially a kid. I mean, about as young as you can be and still considered an adult. And it's a... I don't want to say victimless crime. I mean, drugs can be bad and all, but I mean, you didn't kill anybody. Does it bother you personally looking back? Because those years, I mean, you're out now, you're, you're galvanting around Rochester, Michigan, you're coming to the studio, you're having your scotch now, but you ain't getting those 21 years back, man. Do you resent that at all when you see this kind of thing, whether it's Manafort or anybody get off for, they're not 20, they're 40s, 50s, 60s, for worse crimes, arguably, when they certainly should know better at that age, do you have any resentment there, personally? Yeah, no, I, I don't think, not for my personal case, I don't have any resentment. I mean, my, my anger is more at the way the, the system is set up. You know, I think, because like a lot of, like I, I said before, like, I don't think individual people that, there can be some people that are corrupt, but you know, that's, that's the, the minority of people. You know, that's like the one, two, three, four, five percent. Yeah. You know, the system, the way the system is set up is corrupt. So that's more, you know, like my anger is against the way the system is set up. But, you know, I don't, I don't see it for me personally. You know, whatever. I had to do 21 years. Yeah, yeah, it sucks, man. You know, whatever. Nobody wants to spend fucking 21 years in prison. I mean, that's fucking some bullshit. But I didn't waste that 21 years, bro. I got associate's degree. I got a bachelor's degree. I got a master's degree. Not through the prison. 
my parents paid for correspondence courses. So the prison didn't give me shit. I didn't get no fucking free education. Like I see sometimes when I talk about getting my college degree. And like I say, I've sometimes I read the comments too, or my wife, my wife really reads comments more to me. And then they'll like rail like, oh, you know, I should have went to prison. You got a free education. I got all the students. Taxpayer dollars. No, no. My parents paid for that shit. Correspondence courses. Right. I started writing. I wrote 22 fucking books in prison. You know, these books right here. You know, I wrote these in prison. You know, I get royalties every month from Amazon for books that I wrote in prison. You know, and like I say, I'm not I'm not trying to act like I'm some badass or I'm this rich motherfucker or nothing because I'm not. But I get more money in royalties than a lot of people make in a month, you know, for books that I wrote in prison. So, you know, I don't see it. I mean, do I wish, you know, I, I didn't have to do all that time? Yeah, man, I wish I didn't do all that time. But, you know, I didn't, I didn't waste any time, man. I was busy preparing for my future every day in there. And then, like, like who I am today, I mean, everything I went through made me who I am today. I'm happy with who I am today. I'm happy with where I'm at. You know, I'm still striving. I'm still moving forward. I mean, do I think about sometimes, like, what would my life been if I didn't have to go through all that? Yeah, man. I mean, everybody thinks about stuff like that. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. People think about, like, what happens if I didn't marry this woman or what happens if I didn't have these kids? You know, where, where everybody thinks about that. So, you know, I'm human. Yeah, I've thought about that. But still, man, I mean, I, I wouldn't trade anything, man. I am who I am today because of everything I went through and because of everything I did. And I can honestly say, man, when you do 21 years in prison, you learn, you really, really learn who you are. You learn what you're capable of. You learn what you're not capable of. And um, you, just, you just become confident in the abilities that you have, you know, because you learn what you can do and what you can't do. You know, you learn how you react in pressure situations. You know, you learn, you know, how you can be around a whole bunch of people and a whole bunch of people got weapons and you're the one wading into the middle of the group trying to defuse the situation, you know, cause in prison, that's the type I was a diplomat, you know, I fucked with all races, you know, I played sports. I, I kind of, you know, was a kind of bridge between a lot of different people. And I was always, you know, the diplomat, I was always the one, you know, trying to talk sense into people. And, and a lot of times I was talking sense into people, not because, I didn't want to shit, shit to get violent because, you know, sometimes in prison, sometimes in life, shit has to get violent. That's why we have wars and shit like that, right? But I was more because whatever was going on in prison, prison, be it business, be it, you know, I'm working on my college courses, I'm writing articles, I got to visit this weekend. You know, I didn't want there to be violence because if there's a violence and there's an institutional lockdown, then all that shit I just talked about gets fucked up. I can't go to the library. I can't type up my articles. I can't type up my papers. My girl can't visit, you know, if I'm trying to get some weed or something that they get the weed through the visit. So I'm not going to be able to get the weed that I like to smoke, you know? So it's all different reasons, you know, why you do stuff. I like to keep stuff, you know, I, I did stuff cause I wanted to keep everything, you know, cause if there's no violence and there's no lockdowns, it's basically like they say in prison, like the money's rolling, you know, the hustles are rolling. Yeah. You know, if it's locked down, if it's a lot of violence and stuff like that, everything stops. Everybody loses when yeah, everybody when that loses. Stuff yeah. So, you know, yeah. that, that was my whole thing. And like I say, cause sometimes whatever, I mean, dudes need to get smashed. Sometimes dudes do stupid shit. Just like out here, dudes do dumb shit and they need to get smashed. Who, so, who are these YouTube commenters? That thought that you were getting put through like a master's program on taxpayer expense in prison. Yeah. I, I I had a kind of a low opinion of YouTube commenters to begin with, although I love them in a, a sort of perverse sense because they're fascinating. But I think it's funny that you're catching heat for 
tax uh, taxpayer funded education, yeah. especially to a master's degree. Who knew? I got to get myself. Yeah, dude, I, I used to. Um, so sometimes, like I say, I try not to read the comments because, you know, sometimes, you know, you can get, uh, you know, you can you can get fed up, you know, eat, you know, into them and you just fucking get pulled into them. But like sometimes like I'll look at the comments and I'll look at the people and then like I'll even comment back. And I'll tell the dudes, I'll be like, oh, yeah, everybody's going to listen to you with, like, your two subscribers. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and it usually, usually they're anonymous, too. Two subscribers, and they don't have their real name attached to it. Yeah. We've done, like, an entire segment on that topic on this show. Just, like, if you don't have your own name to something, why would I give a shit what you think? Like, you have such a low opinion of yourself and what you're saying that you won't even put your own name to it. So why am I supposed to care if you I don't call, even like I it? call them screen gangsters. Oh, yeah, that's a good. Yeah. So you know, you know what? And in prison, they got the same type of dudes. Except in prison, we call them cell gangsters. So this is what a cell gangster is. So like when, when everybody's locked down and the doors are locked, the dudes in his cell like yelling out the cell like, "Oh fuck everybody! I'll man, I ain't put up with the bullshit, motherfucker! Fuck with me, I'll beat your ass!" But then when they unlock the cells and you go to the fucking dude like, "Oh, I didn't say nothing, man. It wasn't yeah. me." So that's why we call them cell gangsters. That's a thing in human because, nature, yeah, man. When the doors are locked, they're fucking tough as shit. When the doors are cracked, they're fucking pussies. So same thing with like a lot of these screen gangsters, you know, under all these anonymous names. I call them screen gangsters because, yeah, on a computer screen, they're fucking tough motherfuckers. They got like all types of opinion. You fucking pull them up in person, they're fucking quiet as a mouse. I ain't going to say shit. It's hold me back guy. I mean, I think you could say LeBron James is a screen or cell gangster because... He wanted to uh, get in Isaiah Stewart's face uh, in Detroit there about a week or so ago, and he was talking a big game. Then when he realized Isaiah Stewart was really coming for him, oh, shit, like this guy actually wants to fight, and he wanted to get as much uh, distance as possible between this guy. This is an inside reference for my audience. You know what the fuck I'm talking about. No, no, I saw saw that whole thing. You did see it. I don't mean to insult your sports knowledge. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Most people don't follow this shit the way I do and and my audience does. But, yeah, it's like it's it's holding me back, guy. Like holding me back is a real phenomenon. I I don't know. And he did. He punched him in the face. I saw the the slow-mo. Oh, oh, he did. That was 100% intentional. 100% intentional. Because he didn't didn't like the dude was pushing him. So he, you know what I'm saying? If you if you tell me to put a button on the hierarchy thing, if you tell me there's any cousin, second cousin, aunt, whatever version of the Shawshank Redemption, that type of thing, prison movies generally, like I'm in. Like if I see a trailer and there's some guy sitting on the yard, like I'm in. I'm I'm gonna see that. I just think it's a great genre. I find it fascinating, which is why in large part I wanted to bring you in. I love this stuff. So we had one other sort of prison ish topic on the show when we had the aforementioned Becca Polanski, clinical psychologist friend of mine. Her entire job is working in the prison system. And we had, I wouldn't even call it a debate. I mean, it was a discussion. I see both sides. We had a discussion about the merit of rehabilitation just generally. Like, why give a shit? Um, Again, this isn't me saying I don't give a shit. But (laughs) there is a perception out there. A lot of people, they tend to be more on the right side. The left side is more rehabilitate friendliness, all that stuff. The right side of the debate is typically, fuck them. They're there for a reason. Like, just keep them behind bars as long as possible, whatever. Lock them up as long as possible. Lock them up, throw away the key. If, if possible, throw away the key. And in certain cases, I'm actually not opposed to that. But they certainly have no interest in uh, Chawshank Redemption, you know, building them a library. They, they don't care. Like, they don't care about providing uh, mental health services. So I want to frame this with one of the most notorious cases 
of a person that was probably beyond saving. Carl Panzram, very famous serial killer. Uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson talks about him a lot in his lectures. So this is an interesting quote from Carl Panzram. Paul, if we can pull that up. I, I thought this was a unique look. This guy, if you look into him, was one of the most lethal, uh, vicious sociopaths in American history anyway. His quote was, I believe the only way to reform people is to kill them. And his take, this famous inmate, was he was asked in interviews, he did an extensive interview actually in print, about, you know, how redeemable are the worst inmates? Are they redeemable at all? Is it worth even engaging them? Is it worth trying to, to treat them? His takeaway, which was encapsulated somewhat in that quote, but in his further writings, is that people are set in their ways. They're, they're not worth uh, being fixed or attempted to be fixed. Uh, he didn't believe in uh, reformation at all, just generally. He didn't believe in it. And you saw in that quote, people are what they are. Uh, people are mostly bad, certainly if they end up in prison. You're wasting your time if you even try to reform them. I'm curious for your take on this, because obviously, I don't know, honestly, how much reforming you needed. You are certainly not, you weren't in there as one of the worst of the worst, but you were among some people that might be into that category. So take yourself out of it, because I don't put you in that category to begin with. But the rapists, the murderers, people in that basket, where do you stand on this? Should we bother treating them, giving them mental health services? Or is it more of a just build the biggest wall you can find, and I don't want to see him again. Yeah, no, I, I've I've talked to different people about this a lot. I actually think like people that are truly evil, you know, j- just because you kill someone doesn't mean you're evil. I mean, because you you don't you don't know the situation. You got you know it's not all black and white. There's a lot of gray area. You know, maybe something happened and you had to kill somebody because somebody forced your hand. Maybe you had to kill somebody because it was like kill or be killed. Maybe you had to kill somebody because, you know, they were attacking your family or, or something. You know, you never know. You know, somebody was trying to get over you. Someone was trying to take advantage of you. So I think there's a lot of gray area in humanity. So I'm saying you got, you got to look at the person. You got to look at that gray area. You got to look at the circumstances. And, you know, even, even if somebody, you know, you know, murdered somebody or beat somebody brutally or whatever, I mean, you got to look for that gray area, that redeemable quality. And if it's there, then yeah, I, I believe those people, you know, they deserve a second chance. But if it's like someone that is just outright evil, like, like a serial killer, you know, like a, a Jeffrey Dahmer, you know, a Ted Bundy, you know, a serial rapist, man, fucking fry those motherfuckers, dude. They don't even deserve to fucking live because, I mean, they are so mentally fucking disturbed that they're evil and the only way you could have fixed them is if you caught it in childhood when whatever happened to them to make them like that happened you know maybe because because i'm not saying some of these dudes yeah they're fucked up maybe they got raped maybe they got molested as kids because you see a lot of these serial killers you know that's what happened to them but if you can't identify it and fix them then you know, whenever that right after that happened and in the, in the couple years after that happened, you're not going to fix them 20, 30 years later after they did all this fucked up shit. You're not going to fix them, dude. They're all they are. I believe they are set in their ways. They're unfixable. So but you view those cases, which I do personally, you view those irredeemable cases as a relatively small percentage as an outlier. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Generally, even a bad guy did something awful. What is was a, a you know, isolated incident? has shown genuine remorse, didn't fit their profile prior, 
in general, you're pro these people receiving at taxpayer expense, by the way. That's that's a key component. Yeah, no, I think I, I believe I believe I don't I don't like the uh throw, you know, lock them up, throw away the key mentality. Cause I mean, people change and you gotta look. You gotta look. A lot of people when they're young in their teenage and their formative years, and and when they're young men, you know, their early twenties. I mean, you might be in a situation, man, like especially like you can look a lot of these kids growing up, you know, in these African-American communities and like, you know, they think, you know, being gangster or being like this, you know, it's, it's fed to them in movies. It's fed to them in hip hop, hip hop, you know, so it's fed to them by the elders in their community. So they think, you know, like gang banging, they think this is the way, you know, to be, this is the way to survive because that's what they're taught. But, you know, a lot of them, maybe, you know, whatever, they, they're involved in some murders or involved in some gangbanging, whatever. I believe if, if you catch these people young enough, you know, because when you're 20 and then you're 50, you're not the same person. And whatever, even if they got it. I know dudes that were stone cold murderers, you know, in their early 20s. And then they did, you know, a lot of time, you know, 20, 30 years, whatever. And they got out, you know, like they, they showed remorse, you know, they got out, you know, they repented, they changed. You know, people can change, you know, but like I say, you know, some people, like the small minority, they're not going to change. But I think a lot of people can change, you know what I'm saying? Especially once you have that time. Because in prison, the one thing that prison, you know, people think prison is like, it's all this violence, it's all this, all that. That shit happens, man. But that shit is, it's, it's like a small percentage, you know, it's like most, it's, it's boring, man. It's like a boring routine, you know, it's like mundane you know and then like there's these small pockets of violence happen every now and then you know so i mean you have a lot of time to think and you have a lot of time to think you know and some people if they think long enough you know they can't change but you know change is really about deciding you want to change yeah i think you have to be a willing participant in the rehabilitation that's being efforted i mean becca a lot smarter than i am she's really a good friend of mine too uh really a, a brilliant girl, but she was talking a lot about the epigenetics and a lot of what you're saying is that there is a predisposition. This is what sort of the science purports to, to argue. There is a uh, sort of a predisposition to become these terrible people, for, you know, for a lack of a clinical term here, but it does almost always have to be triggered, like you said, by something that happened usually in childhood. Uh, I, we pulled a little bit of a clip of her talking about this and, you know, we'll kind of move on, but I thought this was interesting. This is Becca Polanski on, on our show a couple months back. I think when people have particularly, especially horrible life experiences, that that has a, a big to do with their behavior later on in life. And working with inmates and criminals, I've heard the saddest stories I've ever heard from people about, you know, horrific abuse and sex trafficking and just terrible, terrible things that they experience in life. And it kind of makes you wonder, even if you did have this genetic predisposition, is this what your path would have been if you didn't experience all these horrible things? Almost to the extent that sometimes it's, that's your normal. Where I, I stood with her where it's like, look, if this is all you're exposed to, your dad beat the shit out of your mom every single day for 10 years now, he finally got drunk and died in a ditch somewhere like and then you end up hitting your girlfriend or spouse like to make it okay but like it, i think you have a potential to be treated and understand why that's not okay and i think you have to treat that with a little more uh 
sort of a delicate nature. Is that fair, Seth? Yeah, you know, the, I, I think what, what I've always said, and I, I say it to people all the time, right? And, and I attribute this to my success and my being to evolve and, and doing what I'm doing now, right? I see, and this is not only people in prison, but I witness it a lot in prison, but people in general, something happens to somebody and it can be something super traumatic, like, you know, abuse, molestation, you know, rape or whatever, which, you know, I wouldn't even going to prison for 21 years. I wouldn't compare that to anything like that. I mean, that I couldn't even imagine, you know, being violated like that, you know, so that's, you know, that's on the far end of the spectrum, you know, the worst stuff that can happen to people, you know, torture or whatever. But what it is like, you know, different things happen to people and that's, they hold on to it. Like they can't let it go. And that's affects, you know, that's why we have so many drug addicts, you know, cause they just want to escape. That's why we have people that do all this crazy shit, crime, violence, whatever. It's cause this shit happens to this trauma, whatever the trauma is. And, and all different people have all different types of trauma and react to different things, different ways. So, but they hold on to this shit and it just fucks them up for life. And I think that's the biggest problem with humanity right now because, you know, and it is, it is like a mental health thing for real because this shit happens to people and they can't let it go. So really for me, what I learned to do in prison, like my first five years, I was probably fucked up, man. I was like, you know, the dudes on my case that cooperated me. I was like, fuck these snitches. If I see these dudes, I'll beat the fuck out of them. Fucking punk ass motherfuckers got me 25 fucking years. You know, and that was my attitude. But, you know, I started seeing like all these dudes in prison that were fucked up and they were like either on drugs or they were always in, you know, they used to like, I call it court chaos. Like, you know, like they had a death wish, you know, they would always put themselves in these fucked up situations where they had to stab somebody or get stabbed or get killed or just, you know, creating drama, you know, between the races or drama with their own race. And, and what it was, I, I saw all these people and what it is, it's like, they, they, something happened to them, be it their sentence, be it the people that snitched on them, be it, you know, something more severe in their childhood or whatever, you know, and they couldn't let go of it. And it, it stopped their progress as a human being moving forward. And they just held on to this shit and it just fucked up their life. So I saw so many examples of this in prison. I finally decided, like, after that first five years, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to be this fucking person. I'm going to fucking. Whatever happened to me happened. I'm going to let it go. And I'm just going to move forward. You know, and I, and I tell people like all the time, like even people like since I've been out in the free world, I see people. It's like they haven't even been to prison or whatever. They, they're just like fucked up. It's like, dude, just like let it go, man. Move on. Dude, Your column. Oh, sorry. Yeah, you can go ahead. Yeah, yeah. no, that's yeah. All, that. Yeah, I was just going to say like you just got to let shit go, man. And you got to move forward. Because if you hold on to the past, all it's going to do is hurt you. Well, coming from a guy that spent almost a quarter century in prison for nonviolent crime that today wouldn't even be that big of a deal. <laughs> I mean, if, if you can say that credibly, I think I can get over the guy that cut me off on the freeway this morning. I mean, you know, that's sort of the ultimate perspective. I don't know. I mean, you're, I was going to say your column advice, the collection of articles that I read is it's like an empathy journal. I mean, you're looking at all sorts of you know fucked up people, fucked up cases, fucked up situations, and it's a major dose of perspective. So it's you know, it's coming through in your writing as well. I cannot recommend your writing enough. I can't wait to read your your books because your articles are just fantastic. And really, I'm a I was a journalism major in college, so I love like just the written word, and I love the medium, and 
uh, objectively, your stuff is really good, man. I mean, that, that uh, pump you up too much, but you're a hell of a writer. I want to, this will be, we do have the speed round coming up. This will be sort of a mini speed round. Cause I, we, we just, I don't want to keep you for five hours, but for your sake, I, you're famous to me now. I've read a lot of your stuff. Now you weren't famous to me until the Brian Laundry case that brought you sort of before everybody again. I just want to touch on it very briefly. This, and look, we don't, we're not going to break down the whole case. Very famous case, Brian Laundrie's out with his fiance and uh, doing this road trip thing. And she turns up missing. He returns home. Nobody seems to, in his family, wonder why he showed up with his fiance's truck and she's not in the truck and he won't talk about it. That's odd. Later turns up she's dead. Now he's missing and he later turns out dead. So I, it, kind of a mess. But I, I just, I'm not going to break down the whole thing, but just your, your theory on this. The parents are involved in this in some way, right? I mean, this is this is my speculation. I don't want to get accused of slander, but it certainly appears the parents were told something when this guy got home and helped him uh, slip out the back door. Now, it didn't work out for him, but there's no way, right? Yeah, no, no. I, I believe, you know, that's, I, and I even said that like on Fox News and News Nation, Inside Edition, um, you know, parents first instinct is to protect their child like even like i'll talk about jeffrey dahmer again even somebody like jeffrey dahmer his mom probably still loved him i mean i don't know all the personal circumstances but you know even the worst criminal the worst person you know to their mom or to their parents that's still you know their little boy or their little girl or whatever and um I'm thinking like how that case kind of transpired. And, you know, since that case transpired, we've actually been given more information. Like, you know, at first, you know, you know, they said there were guns in the house, but the FBI didn't disclose that Brian Laundrie had a gun. You know, that he left that house with a gun. They knew that, but they never disclosed that. Or, you know, I think they said they didn't want to alarm the public or whatever. So that's like some information, you know, that was not divulged. That, you know, maybe if people would have known that, you know, maybe they would have, you know, he probably went and committed suicide, you know. But another thing that I can see, too, is um, the dad took him out to the same area where he committed suicide. So I'm saying, I mean, whatever, if, if, if the kid said, you know, like, I did this, you know, I feel terrible, you know, I can't live with myself. If he broke down to his parents, you know, it just happened, whatever. Maybe he just lost his head and he did it. I don't know. I'm just speculating. And then he, he took the gun. Maybe he could have told his parents, you know, like, I'm going to go commit suicide, you know, or maybe that was a plan. I mean, I don't know. Cause then the dad did take the cops right to the area, yeah, the right water, to the spot. The water was just higher. Yeah. It was so they withdrew. And so they didn't find them, you know, because they didn't know that the water. So I don't know. I just kind of look at it. and I'm like, you know, how much did the parents know? How much did the dad know? How much did they not know? Obviously they know he took a gun because the FBI knew. But the FBI didn't tell anybody. They knew to get an attorney. They knew not to pick up the phone when the family was calling. I'm sorry, like silence in a legal sense in a court of law is not in itself an implication of guilt. However, we're not in a court. We're sitting in the Spew Avenue studio. We can be reasonable. If you lawyer up the second you get back and they lawyer up themselves, the family, the parents, to protect them. They were the client, not just Brian. They were the clients. They didn't get an attorney just for their son. They got an attorney for themselves. Why do you get an attorney if you didn't do anything wrong? So, I mean, no, you can't make that argument in front of a jury. 
But sitting no, here, I can. No, I'm sure he probably broke down. And he told him everything. And, yeah. And like I say, being the fact that he did commit suicide, maybe you know he did something and he couldn't live with it. So I mean, a lot of people that commit suicide, that's why they commit suicide because they can't live with something that they did or they can't live with something that happened to them. Yeah, sex is shit. The parents, man. I'm sorry, but I, I get. I saw your you know media thing, and I understand the perspective. If it's your kid, what are you gonna do? But He's dead now. Can we at least get some transparency now, even if you don't want to implicate yourself? So, uh, so you don't buy any of the conspiracy theories that he's actually still alive. You believe the dental records and all, and all that. that. That's a thing out there, yeah, man. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, someone actually had, had brought that up or said something to me, like when it first started, you know, like somebody texted me because, you know, one of my friends, because they've been following all the news stuff and, um, and my reports on the news. And that's what they said to me. They were like, you don't think? And I was like, dude, that's like some CIA level shit. I'm like, these people, I just, I just don't believe that they have the resources to do some CIA level shit in like a couple days or like a week. I'm with you. They seem like a couple of simpletons. So we'll, we'll finish here before the speed round. Again, another one we could have done three hours on, man. I just, I want to play the trailer for your, for your movie, White Boy. I, I say, because we're, we're in almost two hours now. I always offer my guests when we hit two hours. You want to use the restroom before we keep going? You want to go? I'm good. I'm good. You're good. Okay. I, I always get it out there for two I'm hours. I'm professional. I'm professional. You'd be surprised because there's some guests that get up and, and sprint to the door. Stony of 97.1 couldn't wait to get to the bathroom. But So, White Boy uh, was, I correct me if I'm wrong, top 10 in Netflix for, for a while there. Yeah, for right? two weeks. For two weeks, which is, I mean, just nuts. I mean, it's Netflix. Fuck. I mean, it's, it's impressive in itself. 20 million views in April and May. I think that's pretty good, right? Yeah, yeah I, good. I would like to pull those numbers. That'd be pretty nice. I don't think I'll ever pull those numbers, man. But good for you. I, 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 I'm I, happy with my like 10K or whatever we're at for today. So I want to play just a, sort of a snippet of the trailer just to introduce it to people that aren't familiar with it. We'll touch on it a little bit, then we'll get to the speed run and get you back to that Royal Park Hotel. So let's play the trailer, uh, slightly redacted and edited for White Boy. Businessmen deliver packages. Money, money, money! Only us and you will know it's drugs. Okay. Anybody who's in possession of over 650 grams of cocaine, mandatory life. White boy Rick. His name is Richard Wershey Jr. I was like, who was this white kid, you know, that was supposedly running all these black gangs and, and running the city of Detroit? And when you're 17 years old and you're moving kilos, you're at a, a status of drug dealer that most 17-year-olds don't reach. Why would a juvenile, nonviolent drug offender be kept in prison beyond 29 years? Coleman Young is the most powerful politician in the history of Detroit, and his niece was Kathy Volson, and she was married to Johnny Curry, one of the biggest drug dealers in Detroit. Everybody be pulling soaps down at 1300 was crooked. I've been involved in wrongdoing, but I don't feel I did anything to receive a life sentence. So obviously uh, took the Netflix nation anyway by storm this movie. I love seeing you and Scott Bernstein in the trailer. There are two Spiro Avenue guests, and, and uh, you know, Scott's just one of the best guys ever. Right? It's awesome. And Chris Hansen, a Michigan State J school. I'm just like myself, although I'm not quite the same uh, level of notoriety. But just a little bit, just background on the making of this. You actually know White Boy Rick. You might see White Boy Rick at some point before you depart back to St. Louis. I don't know. I mean, yeah, no, I'm going to see, I'm going to see Rick. Rick. Rick's like a, a good personal friend of mine. So, I had actually, um, I started writing Rick when we were both in prison, like around 2005. 
Um, in 2005, I was actually in a, a medium security federal prison, Gilmer, Gilmer, SCI Gilmer in West Virginia. There was a lot of Detroit dudes. So um, I heard a lot about Rick. And at that time, I was, I was writing like my Street Legends series books. And um, I actually reached out to Rick because I kind of wanted to write his story. You know, because to me, his story, I, I was writing like these, you know, Billy the Kid, Jesse James, kind of Wild West stories, you know, kind of romanticizing and almost glorifying like these crack era gangsters, you know, that were kind of being, uh, you know, lionized in, in um, gangster rap. And so to me, Rick was like the same type of figure, man, because I was hearing like all these crazy, you know, uh, stories and, and mythology about him. Like, who was like this young white kid that was supposedly like ruling the black underworld in Detroit, you know, and, and supplying all the cocaine? It was like a crazy story to me. So I actually started writing him because I wanted to write about him like in my Street Legends series. And he wrote me back and he started telling me like this totally opposite story like that you know about police corruption you know and, and and being used as an informant and all this like crazy stuff that didn't it didn't vibe with the story that I wanted to write and so you know but it, but I felt like you know me and him we we both you know got lengthy sentences you know obviously he got life I only got 25 you know as a you know young kid so we both came you know we were both white we both came into prison you know, at a very young age, you know, with these astronomical sentences. And two, you know, he was like a white dude that hung out with black dudes. And like, I was, I was a hip hop kid, you know, I came up in the mid eighties. I was like a hip hop dude. You know, I, I used to, uh, you know, play ball. I was real athletic. So in prison, I used to hang out with a lot of black dudes. So there was like a lot of similarities. And um, so I kept writing him. And eventually, you know, after about three or four years, you know, um, I think my writing kind of evolved and, and grew and I started writing more about, um, you know, like systematic injustice, you know, and, and oppression and, you know, racial injustice and, and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I kind of figured out a way to write about his story. So I, I actually I wrote a bunch of articles about him while I was in prison. And I did this one article in 2012 for this uh, war on drugs website called The Fix. They kind of went viral, you know, so, um, you know, I was helping to publicize his story. And that was my whole thing. I was like, why is this dude doing life? Why does he have a life sentence for like eight kilos of cocaine? And how's this dude got a life sentence when, you know, he basically worked as an informant, you know, an underage informant and basically was prostituted out by the government as a 14 year old. I just I was like, man, this is like one of the craziest, you know, uh, you know, insane war on drugs stories. And, um, you know, so this kind of led to my relationship with him and we started writing, you know, so we wrote before I got out in 2015, we were writing back and forth for like 10 years. And plus I was having my different books come out and I would send him my books, you know, and he was kind of supporting my work. And, uh, I kind of, when I hit the street, you know, I had an idea, I wanted to make films, you know, I, I knew this, you know, a long time before I got out, I wanted to make films. You know, and I kind of got out and I, I this is another situation where I was extremely lucky because I got out and um, making a murderer had just hit, you know, and it would put a lot of, you know, focus on true crime stories. So, you know, I got out. I wanted to make a film. Um, I really felt, you know, that I need to publicize Rick's case. And like I wasn't the only one. There was a tons of people like Scott Bernstein was doing it, you know, and a bunch of other people were doing it. You know, I mean, 
the injustice of Rick's case is crazy, you know, and it had a lot of people working hard to get him out. But, you know, I was doing my part, and uh, that's how I hooked up with the guy, Sean Reck, Transition Studios, and he had just made a movie that was on Showtime called A Murder in the Park, you know, about a wrongful conviction. And he was actually, uh, he had done like 200 Crime Stopper shows before where he won like nine Emmys, regional Emmys in Ohio. So when I met him, I actually did a piece that was supposed to be on Vice about a murder in the park, but for whatever reason, it didn't run. They, the editors killed it. But I kept up a relationship with him, and he was looking for another documentary. And uh, he had heard about the white boy Rick story, you know, being in Cleveland. You know, so he was, like, asking me about it. And I was like, yeah, man, I, I know this dude. You know, here's all the work I've done on him. So he kind of, like, checked out my articles. And he was like, man, we should do a documentary on this guy. And that's how, like, that whole thing came about. And then when I started, you know, doing it with him, like, one of the first people I pulled in was Scott Bernstein. You know, because to me, Scott has always been, like, you know, the, the, the expert on white boy Rick. You know, he was a guy that was uh, kind of carrying the torch for Rick for, you know, long before I was you know, for a really, a really, really long time. And he was kind of like the subject matter expert. So we pulled him into the project. And um, yeah, we made that movie, man. That was kind of like how, how I learned to make films. That was kind of like, uh, you know, I want to say my, my baptism, you know, into the documentary world, you know. And, and I'm, I'm gracious, too, that, uh, you know, Sean Reck, the director, he kind of took me under his wing you know, and kind of mentored me, you know, because I knew how to tell stories, you know, I was a writer already, but he kind of mentored me in filmmaking. And, th and that's really what I wanted to do. And also, you know, I'm really uh, gracious to Rick, because, you know, Rick had a Hollywood movie going at that time, you know, he didn't have to participate or give his blessing to this documentary. You know, he, he did that because I told him, I said, Rick, I said, I want, I want to make films, man. And I said, I want to help you get you out. I go, so you know, working with this dude, this dude, he'd already did a wrongful conviction and got this dude, Al Story Simon out. So he had a track record getting people out. So I was like, Rick, I go, I believe this dude, you know, he can help to get you out. And I go, not only can he help to get you out with this film, I go, this can be like my entrance, you know, into film. So, you know, Rick considered all that. And, you know, because he was my friend, he, you know, gave his blessing for the whole project and, and participated in it. His, his is a unique case because, I mean, for a number of reasons, there's a reason why there's multiple movies about him now at this point. But technically, age aside, he would fit the bottom rung snitch thing, right, as an informant? Is there, yeah, well, no. I why see, does he not fall into I don't, that? I don't see it like that because this is what a snitch is. This is a snitch. A snitch is if me and you do a crime. Yeah. I get busted. I tell on you to get out of it. Gotcha. That's what a rat or snitch is. You know, Rick, you know, Rick's father was already working as informant. You know, he was buying guns and selling guns. And then he was saying who he sold the guns to. So he was getting money from the guns. And then he was getting money from, you know, law enforcement, you know, Detroit law enforcement for, you know, saying who he sold the guns to. Yeah. You know, so they could go and bust him. So then when the crack era started, you know, that all the law enforcement guys are going to Rick's dad, who he was already working as informant. And they were asking him, you know, like, who are these drug lords? You know, we were hearing stuff about them. And he didn't know because he wasn't out in the streets. But Rick was like a 14 year old kid. And, you know, they lived on the east side of Detroit. They were like some of the only white people, you know, that still lived on the east side of Detroit because his grandparents lived there and they refused to live. They refused to move. 
right? So they stayed there for their grandparents, for Rick's grandparents. And so the cops were coming and asking the dad. And a lot of times the dad would take Rick with him to these meetings. And then Rick started offering up a lot of the information because he was out in the neighborhood, like playing basketball, hanging out, you know, like 13, 14, 15 year old kids do. And, you know, 13, 14 year old, 15 year old kids talk about stuff. And they knew a lot of stuff that was going on in the neighborhood. So Rick was hearing this from his friends, you know, who were all African-American. And then, you know, when they were asking those questions, the dad was looking to Rick, you know, and, and he was giving the information, you know, to, so to him, I mean, yeah, whatever you could say, you know, he, he did, he worked as an informant. That's true. But I wouldn't say, you know, he was a rat or a snitch. I mean, I think there's, there's a difference because, you know, they put him in the drug game. He wasn't in the drug yeah. game and got busted. The cops put him in the drug game. So, you know, there's a difference. I mean, some hardcore dudes are, they're going to say, well, anything on that side of the coin is on that side of the coin. So it is what it is. You know, that's like kind of the uh, prisoner criminal mentality. But, you know, I, I think I like to think, you know, I, I've evolved from that mentality. You know, I'm not practicing that mindset. So, you know, I'm going to I'm going to see it for what it is. And I'm going to blame the cops and the system and the war on drugs for basically prostituting a 14 year old kid and using an underage informant, which is illegal. Yeah. I mean, there's a number of mitigating circumstances, uh, circumstances there, not the least of which is the age. I mean, 14. I mean. It's ridiculous. I mean, even it's you know, seventeen years old, a moron. Like fourteen is it's like that's a kid. Like it's a middle yeah. score. It's I've had tons of arguments with dudes on the on this subject, and like you know, I I, I you know, I can I can appreciate some dudes like the, the the hardcore, you know, death before dishonor mentality, whatever. But I mean, that's a criminal mentality. I'm not a criminal. I'm not in prison. I'm not doing life, so I don't have to uphold that mentality or that mindset. I mean, yeah, when, it, when I was in there, yeah, I, you know, when I was in the higher level institutions, I had to uphold that mindset and that mentality. But now I don't have to, you know, and I don't have to support that mindset. I don't have to support that mentality. And I'm not doing anything criminal, so I'm never going to go back to that world. So you, you don't know. have to worry about it. Yeah. You can live in the world of nuance, like, uh, which is where it should be. I mean, be, I'm, right? a, I'm a writer director. I make films, yeah. you know, so That's right. this is the world I'm in now. So, you know, I'm not going back to that world. You know, I'm not going to be in it. So, you know, I can, uh, I can think on a higher level. Let's go to the, the world of the speed round, Seth. I want to get you out of here for your sake. Because we're pushing, we're over two hours now, and you got a big, comfortable bed. I would know I slept in it the night I got married, man. Uh, Royal Park Hotel is the best hotel in Oakland County. We'll get to the speed round. You know the deal. We talked about it before the show, and then we'll get you the hell out. Let's go. So go go here as long as you want, man. I mean, there's no uh, no time limit, but, uh, you know, it is the speed round. Have fun with it. Do your thing. Let's start here. You've seen a lot of them. You've seen uh, inmates running the gamut of, of style, nature of crime, personality, et cetera. The baddest dude in prison that you ever met. You remember the name? Great. If not, no problem. But who was just the, the biggest, uh, most dangerous, uh, scary guy that you came across in your time there? Yeah, I was with this dude. Uh, I think he's in prison again now, but his name, it was when I was in SCI Manchester. He was one of the Serenio guys, a Mexican gangbanger from L.A. His name was Bobby Salazar. They used to call him Travieso. And, uh, man, this dude just got, like, the ultimate respect, dude. Like, this dude was, like, you know, like, whatever he said was law. And he didn't even have to get violent or nothing because he's, like, his homeboys would do everything. You know, this dude just had so much respect. And um, 
really, it's, it's funny too, because uh, he was like a hardcore heroin addict, but he just got like, I mean, he was just the smoothest, like baddest dude, like, like his word was law, like nobody would fuck with this dude or go against him. Yeah, that's a good one. You had that like ready to go too. And, uh, and I wrote about him in my book, Prison Stories too. Oh, there you go. I'm going to read more about, is it Bobby Salazar? Bobby Salazar, Travieso. Yeah. I think in the book, I just call him Travieso. What was he in for? You know? You uh, he was in for like, like armed robbery shit. Okay. You know? He was like a heroin addict. So he would just like, like rob banks and shit, you know, Western Union. Okay. I think that's what he's back in now for like some Western Union robberies or something. Okay, maybe, maybe he's you. out. Maybe he did time and got out. Look, look into that one. Yeah. So let's go to the opposite end of that spectrum. The prison yard wuss. Uh, you know, you don't have to name a name here. I mean, this is more of a general concept. Like, just the total pansy in prison. Did you ever see that where the, this, the guy is scared of his own shadow, terrified to be there, like the guy on night one of Shawshank, the fat guy in Shawshank Redemption, who, who loses his mind and ends up getting uh, beaten to death by Hadley on the prison floor? Like, did you ever see a version of that character? And what was it like, if so, for that character? Yeah, no, I, I saw a lot of dudes like that, but one that really uh, pops out was um, actually th this white dude that I knew, and um, he was kind of a mild-mannered dude, you know, but he, he was like the dude, he used to try to act like he was like the solid con, but like he was a dude that was kind of like in the, up in the counselor's office or the CEO's office, kind of like doing what they call dry snitching, you know, not like outright snitching, but like, you know, let's say dudes were doing something they weren't supposed to be doing. He wouldn't go and say like, oh, this person is, uh, you know, he wouldn't like name them directly. But he'd be like, oh, yeah, man, I think they're doing some shit back by cell, such and such. Yeah. You know, so he was he was like or or he like might go tell the counselor like, uh, you know, like the, the showers aren't clean. You know, so instead of going to the person who cleans the showers and be like, yo, dude, why the fuck can't you clean the showers? He would go to the man and be like. I took a shower this morning and it was all dirty. So he's dry snitching. So to me, those dudes that did shit like that, they were the biggest wusses. Yeah. And they, they got uh, probably frowned upon it at the very least. I don't think mm -hmm. caught any beatings. You saw a lot of dudes like that, like in the low security prisons. You yeah. Know? There's a lot of rats out there. I'm sure there's going to be some that end up in, in prison as well. All right, moving on. The best Hollywood portrayal of prison, not entertainment, like accuracy. Documentaries don't count. I'm talking about fictional accounts. We talked about Shawshank Redemption. We talked about me liking the genre generally. Have you seen one where it was like, that, that captures the essence of being incarcerated? Yeah, I would say, um, man, it's, it's, it's based, it's a movie, I think it's called Dog Eat Dog, but it's based off of Edward Bunker book. I've not seen it. I have to check it out. Yeah, so it's, um, I, I know, I think that was the name of the book, so I'm not sure if the film was the same name, but e Edward Bunker was like a famous... California prison writer who actually like he, he was in reservoir dog, you know, like he got out, he was from yeah. LA, but he got out and he kind of went Hollywood and started writing scripts, but he was like the youngest inmate at San Quentin. And he has a bunch of books, like all fictional, but they're all basically, you know, like crime novels, prison novels. And two of them actually got made into movies, maybe more. And plus he wrote a bunch of scripts, but yeah, I think it's called, uh, I think the actor that was in it, Edward Furlong, I think that was his name. No, that was American History X. Edward Frong was in that, but yeah. I don't know if he was in this other Yeah, maybe one he too. was in this other one, too. I think yeah. it maybe it's called Dog Eat Dog. I have to look into that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. That's a good one. I, I mean, yeah. I, one, I told you I love these movies. I haven't seen it, so that's one I got to check out. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with this case. I want to touch on it briefly in the speed round. Chris Watts. You know the Chris Watts story, the guy that murdered his family, killed his two daughters. It was also a Netflix movie. Um, I think it's The Murder Next Door. You know anything about this case? No, I don't. I don't. I might have seen it, but a lot of that stuff, like the. Uh... Like that murder stuff. I don't really pay a lot of attention to that, man. Like, yeah. I, I mean, I might have heard the noise, but I'm not really familiar. I couldn't ask you before because the whole thing is supposed to be a speed round ambush. So we can move on. I was curious for your take on him and how he would be received in prison. But if you're not familiar with the case, it's probably a, kind of a bust of a question. I do know you know at least a little bit about this next one because I read an article that you wrote about this one and you spoke to the creator of this. So I found this interesting. I had not heard of this. This Killer Robots HBO movie. I know it was, it was a couple of years ago that you had an article about this. I don't know how fresh top of mind it is for you. But I thought this was really interesting. The concept of this HBO movie is that we're automating ourselves into oblivion. And the insinuation is going to be, to some extent, uh, kind of like an iRobot Will Smith thing where these things are going to turn malevolent and just start killing us all. What was your take on that? Because you, you were more reporter or less uh, editorializing in the article about it. Uh, what's your take on kill robots? Are we going to be killed by the thing making the McDonald's McGriddle in five years? Yeah, I, I mean, you see, they got they got those police dogs. Yeah, those police dog robots. So I, I, I'm saying, you know, it's I mean, there's a big movement against the AI, but there's yeah. a big movement for it, too. So um, I don't know, man, I, I see the world kind of going like, uh, you know, it's 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 kind of like a matrix kind of world today, man. You know, especially like with the covid, everybody working for home now, like people don't even want to work, you know, so. um yeah, I think, I mean, they got the killer drones. I mean, that's that's like a thing. You know, the military's using this stuff. They they have that technology. They have that weaponry. So, yeah, I don't think it's um I don't think it's that far off, man. Yeah, good thing or bad thing, though, this uh, automation and robot, generally. I know there's pros and cons, but are you yeah, pro I don't or know. I, I mean, I'm a firm believer that, um, I mean, I work, you know, so I'm a firm believer you should work, man. I, I mean, I don't want to be, uh, you know, plugged into uh, some, you know, alternate reality or whatever you know i like to get out and, and live man people should do stuff you know that's what i think that's the biggest problem with the world today people are too much you know glued to their tv or, or glued to their video games i mean you know when I, I grew up in the 70s man we we would play sport you know we would go outside you know it wasn't until like the 80s you know atari came around so uh, you know i was like one of the generation for the first video games but you know i grew up going outside you know even the 80s we would go places you know, now it's like with the internet and all that stuff, you don't have to go as many places. So, uh, yeah, I don't think, I mean, maybe for war, for war, it's it's good because people won't die. But I, I just think in, in general, I don't know. I think, I think people should do stuff, man. I'm with you. I'm with you. Working with Netflix is my next one. I listened to an interview with Bill Burr about this. Bill Burr, you know, has his, his F is for family, I think is the one he has on Netflix, or maybe it's his special, I can't remember. I know he's worked with Netflix. He was talking about his experience. He goes into the Netflix offices, and he's amazed at their presentation and how friendly they were. And he said, I was expecting them to be this sort of uh, soulless, massive conglomerate. And he was impressed. He, he was blown away by their vision, how easy they were to work with. You had a top movie on Netflix for a couple of weeks. What was your experience just working with them on the but a clerical side, getting this across the bridge to where it's on their platform. Yeah, really. Um, 
I mean, to be honest, I mean, we had sales agents, so. You I were mean, hands off with them. I mean, I mean, I, I didn't have anything to do with Netflix. I've never talked to anybody from Netflix. You know, any, any information I got about, I mean, I could see like it was top 10 about the film, but any other information, you know, it was, it was, you know, through the sales agents or the people, you know, really the director, Sean Rick, he had, he had more, you know, if anybody had direct contact, but I think, I believe even him, it was all through sales agents. Yeah. You didn't hear you about know? any problems though. Hey, yeah. Cause they have a good yeah. reputation from, content you know, they, they really got that stuff like in the entertainment world. I, I equate the entertainment world a lot to the drug world. So it's kind of like you got these gatekeepers yeah. just like, you know, when you're in the drug world, you're always trying to get as close to the plug as you can. Yeah. And now in the entertainment world, it's like, you know, it's the same. Like, like I would love to have a direct relationship with Netflix you know, where I could show them my stuff, you know, and sell them my stuff. But it's all, you know, it's all gatekeepers. Like a lot of things in life. I think every, everything in this country, you know, there's whatever business you're in, you know, it's all gatekeepers, be it drugs, be it entertainment, be it whatever you do. You know, it's always, you got, you're trying to get through the gatekeepers and get that, you know, relationship right to the plug. Yeah, I'm with you, man. This is the most important one we've asked all night. And uh, frankly, this is the question we've all been waiting for. Did Jeffrey... Epstein kill himself. Um, I don't know, man. I think Jeffrey Epstein, you know, his, his stuff goes to such high levels, man. I mean, it's, it's like CIA level type stuff. I mean, you're, you're talking about, uh, you know, the, the Royal, that, that, whatever the do, the, the Prince in England yeah. and Bill Clinton. I mean, these are, you know, really, really, really powerful men that, you know, got a lot of money and got a lot of connections. And if he was threatened to expose these people, you know, I mean, I mean, we all watch James Bond movies, so. But you're, you're from the prisoner perspective, like you, you were in there, you probably at least heard or saw people down the hall that had this kind of a profile, even if they were, you know, shuffled off to another unit, like the culture of it, doesn't it seem like a bit of a stretch that he would even have been able to do it? They, the cameras are off. The two guards are asleep. Yeah, that's why, that's that why means- I'm saying. I, I, I think, you know, like, look, I mean, our government and like some of the other governments, like the government of, you know, England, um, I mean, I mean, it's been proven, you know, that they can basically do whatever they want at any time. Yeah. You know, and it always comes out later. So I'm saying when, when the people in power are threatened, I mean, they're, they're going to take extreme measures, man. So, I mean, I, I kind of look at like, I'm not a conspiracy, conspiracy uh, theorist. Yeah, not a conspiracy guy. Uh, but um, I look at that and I'm just like, I mean, whatever. They wanted them, you know. And it's just too, like, like the guards, like. You know, I, I, I've been in prison with guards. You know, it's just, it's just too much coincidences. They, like, accidentally deleted a tape, and then there was a different tape, but they forgot to turn it on, and then two guys fell asleep. It's like this whole surrounding nature of the case was, oh, how long until it turns up that he killed himself? That was mm-hmm. the joke. It's, were- it's, it's the same thing like we talked about Whitey Bulger later, yeah. earlier. Like, they knew what was going to happen to Whitey Bulger. They let it happen. I agree completely on yeah, both They of them. let that happen. Yep. Yep. I, I, it's just, it's bizarre. It's one of those, like, it's the unifying conspiracy theory. It used to be JFK, but even JFK, it's like 70, 30 people think that he was whacked by some conspiracy. This is like 98 to two. Like this is the new unified conspiracy. Seth Ferrante, man, it was a pleasure. You came a long way to be here. I appreciate it. 
Uh, it was awesome, man. I mean, I, I would have kept you longer. I feel bad, though. It's late. You did have a travel day. I know you got a big day with White Boy Rick uh, tomorrow and, um, you know, a lot on your plate. And poor Scott Bernstein's probably passed out for too much scotch. I think he went home. He went home already. Oh, did he go home? Yeah, he bounced. He, bounced. he had enough. He said, no, Moss. How the hell are you getting out of here? I gotta, I'll drive out to drive you or something. I don't know. I'll have to clean my car. Uber, was, Uber. Yeah, Uber. I'll, I'll ride you on my back, man. It's pretty close, actually. You can, I'll just I'll skip the way to Royal Park Hotel. It was great to have you, man. Have fun. I don't know what you're doing tomorrow, but Rochester's a great place. Great restaurants down there. Check it out. And yeah. um, I thank you for these books, by the way. I wanted to hold them up really quick. So you got me the you got me Street Legends here. This was the first one you handed me. Yeah, Street Legends Volume 1. So that, that actually that. has... It's like okay, six gotcha. six chapters on these gangsters: Kenneth Suprema Griff, Wayne Perry, Anthony Jones, Aaron Jones, uh, Pete Rollock, and Boy George. And then this is uh, this is like this is probably my most popular book besides Prison Stories the, about the Supreme Team. So this is like the yeah, I you know gotcha. the the hip hop gangster epic there on the go. Supreme Team and and Suprema Griff, who was you know basically. He was there at the beginning of hip hop, and then he was, uh, you know, in the Murder Inc. case, you know, with Irv Gotti when they took them down. So he he's like a really big figure in hip hop. We're gonna I, hopefully your publisher isn't weird about promotions because I like to do anytime someone has a book or something, I like to do like a contest where you give a couple away, and oh, yeah. so I'll buy some of your stock out and and we'll give those away. I'm actually I'm the publisher. I'm I'm good. So I have your express yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, verbal consent. Dorella Convict. To- that's a, that's a publishing house I started. My wife started it when I was in prison in 2005. So it's it's our publishing house. Oh, so I'm off the hook. Then I have yeah, your yeah, blessing. Yeah. All right. So we'll give some of those away. Uh, again, Justin Spiro. Um, I, I, it's been a pleasure. This has been kind of a fun foray away from sports. I am dreading the outcome of the Michigan Iowa game on Saturday. Uh, go Hawkeyes. Although I'm not confident. Hopefully you take care of business and uh, you know our our. Normal producer Ben Augusta is uh, doing something with Michael Vick downtown with his other show, and um, hopefully they're not getting into too much trouble. Hopefully the lap dances are fun there, Ben. But uh, really stepped up to the plate on the uh, other side of the wall here is Paul. So, Paul, uh, I can't see it, but take a bow back there, man. Thank you for getting us across the finish line. Yeah, golf clap for for Paul. I uh, appreciate you, man. And uh, welcome back anytime, Paul. Eric Williamson on his uh, couch and his boxers. Thank you to you. Uh, Scott Bernstein, you're probably home by now doing something if you're still awake. Uh, if you're watching, man, love you too. And uh, we'll see you soon. We got a lot coming. Uh, don't want to spoil the surprise. We got a fun one next week. We're going to announce it soon. Justin Spiro, Spiro Avenue Show. We'll see you soon. Thank you. Thank you.